Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Action Radio. This is Greg Penglis coming to you from the historic district of downtown Milton on the banks of the beautiful Blackwater River. And now let's get into Action Radio. Yeah, normally I'm happily, happy joking and, and doing all kinds of crazy things as we open the show. Not today. Uh, today we have a very serious topic and uh, a very special guest, uh, Scott Shara. And I want to uh, we'll get to him in, in just a second here. But what I was thinking about right before the show started, and uh, this is concerns, we're going to hear the story of Grace Shara. Uh, and this is tragic, and this is unfortunately not that unusual these days, given what's happened to our country and our hospitals and our government and everything else. But I was thinking that, and Scott can comment on this too as, as I bring him on, we used to believe that, that doctors were here to help us. We used to believe that hospitals were a place you could go to get healed or cured. We used to think that, that government experts actually had our best interest at heart. We used to think uh, a lot of things, um, and we don't think those anymore. I was in the awkward position of, of not thinking these things from a very young age, having been kind of sheltered around a few countries, um, and learned about things like the Holocaust at the age of 10 years old, and realized very quickly that if it could happen there, it could happen to me wherever I am. And so that gave me a very different orientation growing up. Uh, with that, what I want to do is bring on Scott Shera now, make his line live, welcome into the show. And I'm just going to let you talk. I, you know, I know you've got an incredible story. Your websites are unbelievable. This is complex. This, you're on a mission. And so just tell us the story of Grace and uh, take as long as you want. Good morning, sir. Well, thanks, Greg. I, I do want to comment about what you said multiple times, what we used to think. And mm-hmm. if there's one thing people take out of, of what I have to say, I hope what you used to think has changed because it will save your life. If you think the old way, uh, you're going to fall trapped to the system, just like my daughter Grace did. And so Grace was 19 when she died. She died. Her last day on this earth was October 13th of 2021. Grace was uh, very high-functioning uh, for someone with Down syndrome. Uh, she was just a, she was a great kid. She could read and write. We homeschooled Grace. We never vaccinated her. And, you know, God made her a certain way, and, boy, she just, she excelled. Uh, she um, she rode horse. She played violin. I taught her how to drive a car. And she was incredibly funny. Uh, she she got literal humor, which, you know, I, I certainly enjoy that, and I taught her it, and her and I played off of each other. And, uh, you know, as, on a day-to-day basis, that's what I miss, miss the most. You know, if she... Uh, if she would have met you for the first time, Greg, for example, she might say, um, "Would you like to hear my dirty jokes?" And you know, you couldn't read. <laughs> well, I've seen some of your videos. Right? Some of the videos of Grace are unbelievable. And she, well, I want to talk about Down syndrome a little bit later. But I want to hear start her first. But what an amazing person! Just uh, the, the the life force in her was unbelievable. And so this is why, you know, I know where you're going with this, but it's just, it's just because yeah. I raised a daughter myself. So I know exactly the same kind of thing. Uh, it's, uh, it's an amazing experience to have someone like that, especially someone like Grace in your life, who is just that much, that strong and that unconditionally loving, just that, that just wonderful a person. I, uh, you said it perfectly. You know, she called me earthly dad because she knew what the relationship was with me versus her heavenly father. So we, we were um, prepared for COVID from the perspective of uh, we had a local doctor that we knew very well that was really on the 
the cutting edge, and then we were following the frontline doctors, the FLCCC protocols. So mm-hmm. we had everything at home. Uh, Grace got a sniffle uh, and toward the end of September of 2021. We were going to go to a wedding on October 1st. So we, you know, she was well enough to go, but we thought, let's test her for COVID. So we did. She tested positive, so we didn't go. We didn't think anything of it because she was on uh, ivermectin, vitamins, you know, everything we're supposed to be doing. The one thing that is interesting, though, is part of their protocol is to get a pulse ox. So you're measuring your your um, oxygen saturation level. And mm-hmm. that really is a piece that I, I'd like to just explain to people because we have sure. a tendency to trust trust man. And even the FLCCC don't just trust blindly. So we bought the pulse ox. We're measuring Grace's oxygen, and it dropped to 88 to 89% on October 6th. So the reason I say that don't trust that is because we didn't have a baseline. So the if Grace had the flu four times in her life before, mm-hmm. you know we didn't have a pulse ox, so we don't even know what you know what was normal. But we were following this literal script instead of using our heads. And so the script said if the oxygen saturation drops below 94%, go to the emergency room and admit to the hospital. So that's what we did. And ultimately, you know, the the hospital followed a series of steps that killed Grace. Uh, but I just, I want to put the light on myself first, because that is really the most important thing. You've got to be responsible for your own health. Never mm-hmm. trust any man. Do the research yourself, and that will protect you. So now as we go into the hospital stay, uh, the emergency room physician suggested that we'll just put Grace in the hospital for three or four days on oxygen and a steroid and she'll be fine, which if they would have only done that, Grace would be alive today. And mm-hmm. I know that with 100% certainty because I went into a different hospital three days after Grace died and they did not do to me what they did to Grace. In fact, they turned me around in 24 hours and I just about died. So what happened? I want to so what was the difference? What did they do? Uh, it was, well, first, the, the difference, I'll just lay it right out. I mean, the first difference was the perspective. The hospital okay. that Grace was in, were, they were uh, very condemning. You know, we know what we're doing. You know, just listen to us. We've been doing this for two years. And, you know, they didn't want, they just thought I was a dummy. The other okay. hospital, when I went in, they asked me, what would you like to have happen? So just a simple thing. So I asked the hospital nurses where Grace was, can you make the alarms ring outside in the nurse's station? They Mm -hmm. lied to me and said they couldn't. In the hospital I went to, I asked for no alarms, and they they made everything go away out of the room and made the alarms ring at the nurse's station. But a very significant event happened the, the, the morning after I made it through the first night. The nurse came in with a pill cup. This is when I was in the hospital. And mm-hmm. she said, I'd like to go through the pill regimen with you. I said, what do you have in there? She said, I have a probiotic, multivitamin, vitamin D, vitamin C, and fish oil. I said, you got to be kidding me. You guys don't believe in that. And she, <laughs> said, well, we, she said, we do here. And I thought, I'm going to make it. And then a, a respiratory therapist came in with a budesonide treatment. You know, it was com- night and day, that hospital, compared to the one that, that Grace was killed in. So... You know, as we as we move forward, I mean, there were several challenges that happened, and ultimately, those challenges led to me being taken out by an armed guard on October 10th, 
one of the mm-hmm. most unique things about Grace's story is we were there. You know, ninety nine point nine percent of people who were murdered in hospitals, there's no family around. They have a shroud of secrecy with with COVID in hospitals, no families around. They have incentivized um, bonus plans to follow protocols that kill people, and then they have immunity from liability under the PrEP Act. So that combination really sets up a scene that is taking out 1.1 million people in the United States today. It's it's a big deal. You know, it's it's unfortunately uh, hidden. The, this hospital killing lane is relatively hidden. There's very few people speaking out. Just about everybody is in the vaccine lane versus what I'm talking about. But not on this show. Um, <laughs> You're among friends. Well, here. I'm, thank, been, uh, I'm thankful you know, to yeah. share it. So I am, yeah, <clears throat> I'm thankful to be on. So as we we um, move forward with so on October 10th. So Grace's first day. We were in the emergency room October 6th, first day in the hospital October 7th. I was taken out by an armed guard on the 10th. Um, And what precipitated that event was me challenging the care. And I'll just give you a a simple example. When Grace was hungry, you know, Grace could feed herself, of course, but she had a BiPAP mask on. So I start feeding her, and nurse comes running in the room, says, you can't do that. I said, what's the reason? She said, well, her oxygen saturation is only at 85%. And so when you remove that BiPAP mask, it reduces it further. And mm-hmm. so I thought, I don't think that's right. So I had my own pulse ox in, the same one we used on Grace, because I suspected I'd get COVID when I'm in the room with Grace. So I, I put it on Grace's finger, and it read 95%. So I called the nurse back in and asked her if my meter was accurate. She said, yes, it is. And I said, well, why is your meter not reading the same as mine then? She said, well, because the leads get sweaty. And so then I asked her, you know, if that's a known, why don't you change out the leads proactively, given this is the single most important statistic you're using to manage my daughter's care? And she shook her finger at me and said, you should just be thankful you caught this. So that was one of many challenges I, I had. And, you know, ultimately that led to the head nurse coming in with an armed guard and, you know, escorting me out of the building. So then we so, had to hire an attorney. Go yeah. ahead. I was going to say, what do you think your crime yeah. was to them? Because like, in, in, your, in their eyes, you're a criminal. You've, you've interrupted the protocol. You've challenged the authority. You've, you've called down the, the thunder and said, wait a minute, here's a simple solution. In fact, at 95% oxygen saturation, she shouldn't have even been there. You know, and I'm Correct. thinking, but what you really did was you challenged the authority. You showed their inadequacies, and they couldn't stand that. This is how bad this is. We've got two medical systems. I'm going to talk about this as we, the hour go through. But it looks like we have two medical systems in this country, uh, one the one that you got and one that, uh, that happened to Grace. And you can say murder by hospital on this show, so be as blunt as you want um, because yeah. I feel exactly the same way. But that's what you really did. So the armed guard was, how dare you question us? Who do you think you are? That's what it seems like to me. Well, I, and I think it's more nefarious than that. Okay. Because – I think there was an agenda, uh, you know, the number one and number two causes of death with COVID in a hospital uh, Mm -hmm. were elderly number one, disabled number two, and those are not comorbidities. Those are just facts. And there is a stated agenda that started, you know, officially on March 23rd of 2010 with Obamacare um, to reduce the cost of Medicare and Medicaid, and that's how you do it. And, you know, COVID is just a cover to accomplish a, you know, a short-term goal, uh, which is 
you know, reducing cost in the bigger goal of the agenda to reduce the population. So that's where mm-hmm. I'm coming from. So I think okay. it was, um, you know, so I'm Agreed. disrupting the apple, the apple cart is what's going on. So that's right. why I think it was imperative for them to get me out. Otherwise they couldn't keep going forward. So we end up, my wife mm-hmm. had COVID. She couldn't come in as a replacement advocate. In fact, they didn't want a replacement advocate. So we had to hire an attorney to get my daughter Jessica in as a replacement. So Grace had nobody in the room with her for 44 hours. Wow. During that 44 hours, they had started her on a sedation med called Presidex. And mm-hmm. during that 44 hours, they increased the dose seven times. So instead of taking care of my little buddy, they yeah. sedated her. By the time Jessica got in the room, she's now been sedated for three days. And this drug, if you read the package insert for Presidex, which the package Mm -hmm. insert is what they're supposed to follow, it says specifically if you use that drug for more than 24 hours, it causes acute respiratory failure. And the first cause of death listed on Grace's death certificate is acute respiratory failure, which the hospital received a $7,500 bonus for listing it that way. The second cause of death listed was COVID-19 pneumonia, which as I go through the story, you'll see uh, you know, what you what you just got done saying, of course, I concluded also, which Grace was murdered. And, mm-hmm. you know, at the beginning, I just thought, you know, this was an accident I thought was medical malpractice. Uh, so I had requested a meeting with the doctor and the CEO to walk through the records, what I found so that they wouldn't make the mistake again. Well, they refused a meeting, which that started a whole sequence of events. And now I've become an advocate. But you'll, as I walk through Grace's last day, you can make up your own mind if she was if it was an accident or not. So I'm with you hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. Cause I've heard the story before and, and I, I've lost people. I, I lost a friend of mine years ago uh, to a heroin overdose in the hospital. They gave her too much more, uh, gave him, uh, my friend, Kurt Moeller, fellow flight instructors back in the early nineties, they gave him four times the amount of morphine he was supposed to have and they killed him. So, I mean, I oh, go way back with, with, with distrusting hospitals. Uh, they killed our webmaster, uh, Eric Colley. Uh, who created writeyourloss.com. Everything we do at Action Radio with, with citizen legislation results from what Eric Colley created for us, you know, and they killed him in the hospital a year ago, February. No, excuse me, last February. So it's coming up on a year now. Um, and so this is, this is a, you know, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, I, I didn't lose a daughter, but I've lost, you know, some dear friends. And so it's, uh, this tragedy touches probably almost everybody in the country, and I think that's what's changing us. Anyway. Back to your story. <laughs> well, I agree. It's yeah. very few people who have had experiences like you that, you know, that are the, the lion's share of people don't believe me when I tell the story. And really? they can't wrap their head around a doctor doing this. This, this pattern happened in, in Nazi Germany. Same pattern. Yeah. But once people I'm got to get to that to too. It happening, yeah. they, they ended up getting awake to it happening. And then it went, it essentially went underground to keep the, keep the killing going. And I think that's where we're at right now is as this hospital lane gets exposed, mm-hmm. they're not going to stop. What we can, you know, I can explain my, my thoughts on that. And, and you also at the end, but we're, as we get in, so great Grace's sister, Jessica, my, our daughter, mm-hmm. Jessica is now in the room with her. Uh, Grace is still normal. in spite of being sedated. Her sense of humor, the whole thing. Uh, and they made Jessica gown up. Uh, when I was in the room, I, I told them I didn't want to wear any of this garb. It doesn't, it's not going to do anything. And, you know, they, they listened to that. Thankfully the doctor did, the nurses didn't, but anyway, they made Jessica gown up. She gets in the room with grace and this is just a cute moment I want to share. So 
Sure. And she starts talking to Grace, and and Grace, you know, Grace can't recognize her because she's all got a spacesuit on, and so Grace says to her, "You sound just like my big sister Jessica," and <laughs> Jess, Jess wow. says, "I am your big sister Jessica," and Grace doesn't believe it, so. So she shows Grace, um, Grace, Jessica has some tattoos on her arms, so she shows her and they gave each other a big hug. And that was just a special, that's a special wow. moment. Uh, so yeah. uh, the the night before Grace died, her oxygen levels were 98 to 99% the entire night. This is in spite of now being sedated for four days on Presidex, which reduces your oxygen saturation. I'm surprised she, she didn't just dead. discharge her. Uh, you know, I mean, this is probably, well, you've probably been over this in your head a million times. Yeah, well, why did they just of, send her home? Well, that wasn't the goal. Yeah. And they had a goal to get her on a ventilator. And when we denied the ventilator request, so they, they kept asking us for a pre-authorization for a ventilator five different times. And they would frame it that these type of things tend to happen in the middle of the night when we can't get a hold of the family. So we just would like your authorization of course they have in, a middle of the just night. Just in case. Right, yeah. exactly. And yeah. we were wise to ventilators. So on the morning of Grace's last day, the doctor called us following up on the conversation the night before, asking us, you know, what is your decision on this pre approval for a ventilator? We said no again. And I believe that by saying no again we signed Grace's death certificate for that day. And the reason I say that is because the hospital was at full capacity. Statistically, I have I have the statistics. I was able to find them online. The emergency room was full, so they had to turn that bed over. That's my theory. So yeah. when we go through the events, you'll see why. So now he asked us this question, so we say no. Then he immediately switches gears and said, Grace had such a good day yesterday which we already knew from talking with Jessica, that mm-hmm. we should work on nutrition. And so Grace is malnourished because of, you know, them not, not feeding and not letting us feed her. So he, Grace has a central line in, but he convinces us to not use the central line for TPN food. Let's put a feeding tube in and let's get her out of bed today, watch TV. we got to get things moving so we can get her out of here in the next uh, two, three days. So we agree to this feeding tube. We get mm-hmm. off the phone with him. About the same time we get off the phone with him, Jessica said to the nurse, I'm going to take a shower. And the nurse in this case had 14 years of ICU experience. So she wasn't a dummy. That's significant as we keep going. So she, the nurse said to Jessica, you can't take a shower in the room. And she said, well, why not? Well, my dad was in the room. You guys allowed him to do take a shower. And she said, I don't care what we did for your dad. You can't take a shower in the room. So she talks with Grace to see if that's okay. Grace said, or gives her the thumbs up. Grace was prone at that time, so she couldn't talk to her. Uh, mm-hmm. So Jessica's gone an hour. When she comes back, she and she's gowning up, she overhears two doctors and this nurse in the hallway say the family's not going to like this. And so she said, what aren't they going to like? Well, while Jessica was gone, they strapped Grace down to the bed and made her poop in the bed. So just process this. Yeah. An hour earlier, the doctor said, we're going to get her out of the bed. So now my little buddy wants to go to the bathroom, and they won't help her. Then they use that as the excuse to increase the sedation med, Presidex, to 14 times the dose from four and a half days earlier. Eight minutes did they ever explain? That, so that, 
they never explain why they wanted a sedator in the first place. You're talking about somebody who was, doesn't seem to be uncooperative, who doesn't seem to need sedation, who was improving, had an oxygen saturation level that should have sent them home, sent her home immediately. What was their, what was their justification? I mean, there is none, but what, what did they tell you? There is none. I mean, in the record, well, they don't tell us anything. There's no informed consent. I mean, they're, okay. they're above everybody. They know what's going on. So, I mean, they just mm-hmm. do things. And then you find out in the records and, you know, they make up excuses in the records that, uh, you know, the person's agitated, blah, blah, blah. I mean, we were there. Grace was never agitated. She never fought the BiPAP. Uh, you know, so all those excuses that they put in are, mm-hmm. are nothing but lies and they're direct lies. The, you know, so now, unbelievably, eight minutes later, we found this in going through the records. The doctor mm-hmm. put an illegal do not resuscitate order on grace. So 1048, they maxed out the Presidex. Eight minutes later, 1056, he puts a DNR on her. One of the why is, reviewed that. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Tell me about it. Yeah, well, I'm curious. You'll see why when we get to the end. But, I mean, the, one of the attorneys who reviewed that sequence of events said, Scott, they must mm-hmm. have thought the Presidex would take grace out, so they had to put the DNR in place to cover their tracks. So as we move forward through the day, 1125, now they gave her a dose of lorazepam, which is contraindicated with Presidex. At 1137, they put the feeding tube in. 159, almost two and a half hours later, they start feeding her. At 546, they gave her another dose of lorazepam. 549, another dose. And at 615, morphine. So now in 29 minutes, she has three contraindicated meds, Presidex, Mm -hmm. lorazepam, morphine. And that is the second cause of death, not COVID-19 pneumonia, because that would have taken you and I out, Greg. For that to happen, and this is where I crossed the line and said this is murder, is, you know, you think, well, you know, it could be an accident, right? Medical malpractice is the third leading cause of death. But a doctor, the doctor had to order those meds. The pharmacist for the hospital had to sign off. I mean, the pharmacist knows this is not good. Then -hmm. there's an alarm that had to be shut off by the nurse because those meds are contraindicated. And as I said earlier, the nurse had 14 years of experience, so she knew better. So you can't make up that sequence. So now at 615, Grace Grace is still alive. Jessica senses she's getting cold. She tries to call the nurses in. They said, that's normal, just cover her with a blanket. They would not come in the room. After they gave Grace the no doctor or nurse came in the room. So Jessica yep. called Cindy and I, via FaceTime at 7.20, and she was panicking. Dad, Grace's numbers are dropping like crazy. I said, get the nurses in. She said, I've been trying. They won't come in. So Cindy and I start screaming, save our daughter. They holler back from outside the room. She's DNR. That's when we first knew she's DNR. So we holler, she's not DNR. Save our daughter. They refused, and Grace died at 7.27. Unbelievably, if it, you'd think it couldn't get worse than that, you know, as the evening goes on, I take Grace, or, uh, Cindy to the hospital. I couldn't come in because I had COVID. So they get through everything. And then Jessica explains to us that there was an armed guard posted outside the room. So process that. And we know that armed guard was for Grace because after Grace died, Jessica crawled in bed with Grace and held her until Cindy got there. And the armed guard stood outside the nurse's window and watched her the entire time. We learned subsequently from a medical malpractice nurse that Grace could have still been revived during that window. 
because the BiPAP mask was still on. Yeah, this is intentional. I mean, I, I, I hate to have to have you retell this story. I'm sure you've done it way more than you want to. I know why you're doing it, because you want to save everybody else that you can. This makes perfect sense to me. But, uh, you know, congratulations for doing this and putting yourself through this as often as you do, um, because I know you're doing, you know, amazing work, uh, but it's got to take a toll on you, you know. It's it's tough at times, Greg. I mean, I, I God gave me the ability to compartmentalize the story to tell it. And okay. I've only I've only broke down three times on air. I've been on about four hundred programs so far, and it's, yeah, um, yeah. Well, I have we have to plenty of time it. to talk about this. This is, uh, this is yeah, it's critical. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's why I want to get your story, and then I want to. Uh, this is Action Radio, so what we do is we actually write citizen legislation. We have solutions. I have um, actually a bill of rights that I wrote with a woman in Australia, Australian Bill of Individual Rights, that takes into account informed consent, mind and body autonomy, and things like that. So we'll, we'll talk about what you know what we can do about this in a little bit. But I just want to make sure we get the story out there. Um, anything else you want to to tell us about this? And then I want to hear the good stuff about Grace, what she did. <laughs> well, the one thing that that gave us a clue is, and this is the final piece of Grace's hospital stay is, as uh, Cindy and and Jess were leaving the hospital, our pastor was walking Cindy out in a wheelchair and one of the nurses had Grace's belongings on a cart and she leaned down to my wife and said, Mrs. Shara, me and several of the nurses don't think Grace should have died today. Oh, wow. So that gave us a clue that something happened. Interestingly, I mean, we're out there. We have seven. Why are they saying it then? <laughs> it's too late <laughs> then. Why didn't they do something well, ahead of time? I, what are they afraid of? What's, what's, not, what's going on in these hospitals? Tell me, I'm, uh, I'm mad now. <laughs> I'm mad for you. Well, what, what's interesting to me is, you know, we're out there. We have 17 billboards up in our local area. Everybody knows uh-huh. this story in our area. Right. And yet none of the doctors or nurses who are involved have come forward. You know, it's, it's hard to grasp. So, you know, because of, you know, once you, your daughter's gone, I mean, the shock of that first, and then you do the research with the medical records and then mm-hmm. God made me this way. And so I keep pursuing what's, what, why did this happen? What's even going no, on? Going. After yeah, I realize this, you're, you're finding a lot of people's fights. You know, so keep going. You're doing well. The right after thing. you realize they murdered her, you think, "What the heck is going on?" So that led to investigating mm-hmm. genocide. That led me down to the the World War II path. Well, let's talk about unbelievably, that. Yeah, yeah, God opened up the door for me to to um, work with Vera Sherov, and Vera is a Holocaust survivor. She's been in this fight for thirty years, and. You know, so I had about 100 hours of research in the Holocaust, stumble across her. I, I called, unbelievably, she answers the phone, and her and I became wow. fast friends. We've done 25 interviews together now. And oh, great. The parallels, the parallels are, are eerie, absolutely mm-hmm. eerie. I mean, you can just line them up. We have, we have a spot on Grace's website where we have the parallels listed. There's about 50 of them. That are literally. Oh, I was, I was looking. Yeah, yeah. Let's give your website. Give your website because you've got several and there's several articles about Grace. It's an amazing story. I knew about it beforehand. I just didn't know all the details, and this is why it's nice to have you on the show and get these out there. So let's give your contacts uh, any information that you that you want as far as websites because your your website, um, you know, Grace is it's just it's an amazing thing to go through, especially all the the, the complexity and the details in it. Our amazing Grace. There we yes. go. Yep, our ouramazinggrace.net is the website, uh-huh. and if anybody wants to contact me, there's a contact us uh, spot on the website. But 
so as things progressed, you know, so mm-hmm. the, the you know, we can come back and talk about some of these World War II situations, but I just want to connect the dots as to where things are at today. Sure. So we get all the way through the timeline. So now, yeah, no, please. You know, I I had no, I did, I was not awake beforehand. I was a conservative businessman who had a healthy distrust for the government. Now I'm totally mm-hmm. awake. You know, so then you learn about agenda. You learn about agenda 2030, and mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you start really like, holy cow, what is going on here? Mm-hmm. Well, then, uh, have you heard of the British nurse Kate Shemarani yet? I've probably heard the story, but I don't. But that's not the name so, that you know the, the name that so I recognize. Kate, What's your story, Kate? It well, Kate inspired me, so I ended up talking with her in in December. One of the the host uh, shows that I've been on before. Him and I were talking, uh-huh. and I I knew of Kate, and she was on his show. I said, "Can I get in contact with her?" Well, she's she's one step ahead uh, in the UK, exposing the the euthanasia agenda. So she okay. said, Scott, find the smoking guns in the United States. So I went on a mission starting in uh, mid-December to find the smoking guns in the United States. And, oh, my gosh, this is it's quite a path. The, mm-hmm. the, Health and Human Services, the Health and Human Services Secretary legally put death panels back in place under Obamacare the day before Thanksgiving, just this past Thanksgiving. Obamacare allows for euthanasia right in the document. I found all this stuff. I mean, it's all there for us to find if you dig. Uh, so then now you take this all the way to today. Before COVID, there were 62 million people on Medicare and Medicaid. Mm-hmm. So you would think that number would have went down with COVID, you know, just intuitively, right? Mm-hmm. But it didn't. It went from 62 million to 100 million. Mm. So they, How about they that? relaxed <laughs> They relaxed yeah. the rules with COVID. So, you know, you'd think, well, they relaxed the rules for votes, right? Because everybody on that gets free medical is going to vote the right way. Well, they don't need the votes. They already have that rigged. So yep. the votes isn't the deal. They want these people on government assistance so that they can euthanize them. That's what's happening. And I know I sound like a whack job when I say that, but no, you don't. It, I have I have thousands of hours in this, and yeah. it is real. When you look at some of the details that they pulled off to to accomplish this whole COVID narrative, they've been working on this for decades, and they crossed every T and dotted every I. And I'll give you a very pointed example: the Brooke mm-hmm. Jackson case. So Brooke Jackson's a Pfizer employee. She quits, becomes a whistleblower. She files the, the show. False claims act. She we had on the show briefly. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, it's it's phenomenal. Oh, go ahead. I mean, Tell the story. Fantastic. I mean, she 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 files the case against Pfizer. I mean, you think yes, right? That's what should happen. Pfizer's right. defense. Pfizer's defense is we weren't even contracted to produce a vaccine, so we don't have to do any testing because we have a contract with the government. Then the government, so this is on October 4th of 2022, so this case is still pending. The government came in behind Pfizer with a motion to dismiss, literally saying, yes, we have a, Pfizer has a contract. There is no case here. You can't make this up. But nobody knows this. This stuff is all hidden. 
it, it's there if you dig, but it's well. You got to yeah, ask the right but, questions. I mean, the, the secret. This is the point I found about investigations. Once you ask the right questions, it's amazing what opens up to you. So it makes perfect sense. This is a. There's two things going on. One, the money. We haven't talked about that yet. The the CMS uh, Center for Medicaid yeah. or Medicare, you know, systems. Uh, and the second thing is the genocide agenda. And so these two yeah. things are working hand in hand. This is Nazi Germany revisited. This is a medical holocaust. Uh, the only difference is they don't have concentration camps and death camps. They're using the hospitals. But it's basically the same result. They've sanitized it. They found a, a nice way to present it. Then they bring COVID into it. But what you've shown me that I haven't thought of is the connection between Obamacare and COVID, of how that works. You know, I, when I work on things, I, have, uh, I made a discovery that the 2007 um, pandemic uh, influenza guidelines had something called a pandemic severity index, where there were no lockdowns recommended until at least a Category 4 pandemic, which is where, you know, upwards of 1.8 million people have been killed uh, by, the, by the actual virus, not comorbidities, uh, you know, from, not with. And then, one point, and then a Category 5 was 1.8 million and above. Well, they changed the guidelines in 2017, three months after Trump takes office. So Dr. Fascist, as we call him, makes an announcement that Trump's going to have a pandemic during his administration. And then he, well, he couches it more, you know, obscure terms. But that's basically what he said. Three months later, April 21st, of 2017, Trump's been in office three months and a day, and they changed the guidelines, taking out the pandemic severity index, so they can go to full lockdown immediately. Gee, wasn't that a, that wasn't that a coincidence? <laughs> you know, three you know a couple of years later we get COVID-19. Gee, how about that? <laughs> so yeah, I, you're 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 preaching to the choir here. I mean, you are talking to the converted. You know, I've uh, I've been um, working with this this kind of a problem. I mean, I met I knew Dr. Zelenko. We wrote a bill to reform the FDA. Nobody in Congress has taken it up. You know, I've got a bill on product uh, liability for vaccine manufacturers. You know, can't get any traction yet. We're still working on it. I've got a bill that's, that ends big tech censorship. You know, so we're dealing with all these things, but we don't have the, the voice and the megaphone because I'm as censored as probably you are, you know, trying to tell your story. Yeah, I know you yeah. do. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's hard to grasp. When I, I was not awake to any of this. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't trust the government, of course, nobody, anybody that trusts the government's a fool, but I mean, I'd never thought that they were corrupt. In fact, you know, the, the second most important thing I've learned as a result of Grace's death is our government is 100% corrupt. If they mm-hmm. say black, you better believe white, otherwise you're a fool. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the single most important thing is that is how programmed I was. Uh, so you know, yeah, and, uh, you got to you got to deprogram yourself. I mean, I, yeah. I deprogram myself every day. What do I believe? Why do I believe it? Mm-hmm. And you know that piece is critical if you're going to become fully awake. Yeah, it's a challenge to you, and this is I don't want you to beat yourself up too much because uh, you did all the right things. You did what you thought was the right things. You know, you find out later that it, you, the things that you know now would have caused you to do different things. Uh, you did not sign you know, Grace's death warrant by your actions. They did. So I don't want to, you know, I don't, I don't know how to relieve you of that burden, but this is not your fault what happened. And, and the most important thing that I realized, uh, like I say, I grew up in Canada, Australia, and the United States. And it was in Australia at, at the age of 10 that I learned about the Holocaust as a World War II special. And I thought to myself, you know, and people are saying, well, I, I can't believe it happened here. And it's like, well, why can't you believe that if it happened in Germany? And, you know, and then, of course, China under Mao and uh, uh, Italy under Mussolini and, uh, you know, Russia under Stalin. If it could happen there, why can't it happen here? So I, I'm unusual in that I realized very early on, if anything could happen anywhere in the world, it could happen to me because wherever I am in the world, because I was being shuttled around a lot. And so you have to, the first thing you get over is the idea that is the denial that it can't happen here. And once you realize that anything can happen here, 
my first impression of the United States when I got here in 1972 was the, the size of the government, because uh, Canada and Australia don't have a government anywhere near as big as the United States. I'm thinking any government that big has the power to do everything that the worst governments in history have done. That was my initial impression. I'm just a teenager, right? And, and then things went along and things were fine. It's like, oh, okay. You know, I learned about the 60s and then, uh, hey, we we're questioning authority and that was cool. Uh, and I was still a young <laughs> kid then. You know, I, I missed the, the 60s. I was like, a, you know, too young for the 60s by about five years. <laughs> so anyway, um, but, but I realized, and I'm watching world events and then we go to war. And there's no war here. And then we go to war somewhere else. And there's no war here. And now we're in a third country and fourth country. And we go from, uh, you know, Iraq to Afghanistan to, to Ukraine. And all these wars are coming up all the time. We're always at war somewhere and nothing's happening. We're not at war here. And so I'm like, what is this? The permanent war class? And that's what I call it. But then this whole medical holocaust that's going on now, this is fairly new to me. I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what. But I've always had the belief that it could happen here. And once you get over that it can't happen here, then your entire perspective changes and you're open to everything. And not only do you see that it can happen here, but how it can happen here. And you trace the psychopaths like Dr. Fascist. He's an absolute psychopath. He's Dr. Mengele and Dr. Goebbels or Joseph Goebbels rolled in one. He's both the propaganda minister and the death minister at the same time. It's pure evil. And you look at him, he's this nice little guy, but that's what evil looks like. And when you look at him, if you don't see pure evil, you're missing the point. I agree a hundred percent. And, an interesting yeah. piece that, you know, we know the government lies, but it's mm-hmm. legal. That's another piece that I was shocked at. They, they can legalize, they legalize the use of propaganda mm-hmm. or national defense. So they consider, you know, this is, this is, remember when Where'd Trump you find went this? on and said, uh, this is the, the Smith-Munt Act was overturned. Let me just find this quick. Sure. Yeah, take your time. So that we was actually have no guests the second hour, and, and so I got, I, got, I got more than an hour. You can stay as long as you want. And my third hour guest canceled. <laughs> so I got, a, I got the rest of the show. So stay, stay as long as yeah, you want. This is fascinating. Yeah. yeah. I'm just going to find this quick so that I can okay. no, speak take confidently about it. Okay, so the Smith-Mund Act in 1948 forbid mm-hmm. uh, use of psychological operations influent at the, the, with the goal of influencing U.S. public opinion. Mm-hmm. On July 2nd of 2013, the Smith-Munt Act was, quote, modernized, end quote, uh, mm-hmm. under the 2013 National Defense Authorization Act, and it specifically calls for the government to lie to us under the guise of national defense. So, I mean, they've legalized this. So what we're, mm-hmm. you think, how could they do this? And, you know, you come to grips with, with certain things, like you said about they, they changed the guideline for lockdowns. You come mm-hmm. to grips with these facts, and if that does not wake you up, uh, you can't be woken up. Yeah, <laughs> and that's part of the problem, but so many people are. But we've got, I want to talk for a second about the, the fact that we really have two standards of, of care in this country. Uh, and I noticed that's with, with the COVID doctors, as I got to know Dr. Zelenko and Dr. Judy Mikovits and Brian Artis, and all these folks are friends of mine now. We used to have the world's greatest doctors panel. We'd have all these folks brainstorming. John Cullen, too, the data expert who created the COVID map for, for Johns Hopkins. We all got together and we started talking about all this stuff. And we realized that we all had the same basic perspective. We just came at it individually, but now there's a group of us. And it's, it's fascinating that the, the, these, these people, the, the, the global government, world oppression, you know, great reset, you know, genocidal population control folks, they've united all of us. They've united the resistance. And I don't think they're quite aware of what they've done yet, but it's, there's an amazingly powerful uh, force out there. And even though I've just met you now, you know, we've been doing the same thing and fighting the same fight from different angles. Um, and it's going to be to all our good. And as we wake more and more people up, you know, you've got to get past the denial. 
First of all, it can happen here. Correct. Secondly, if it can right happen on. here, it can, it can happen to you. And if it can happen to you, then you better do something about it. <laughs> so those are the three things. But once you get over the first two, then your life changes and you start making different decisions and different priorities. And I started Action Radio. I started this back in 2014, actually. So, yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, and it comes where in places you least expect it. So, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, you know in studying World War II, yeah, I learned that the Jewish leaders at the time were the ones who led the Jews to the gas chambers. And not literally, but they did that by not resisting at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And so, all, you know, you know, the gas chambers didn't happen in a day. It was a progression over a series of a decade. Mm-hmm. And they didn't stand. And the Christian pastors today are doing the same thing. They shut down their, you know, when the government said shut down your churches, they obeyed. Wear masks, they obeyed. Uh, there is upward, uh, up to, in one of the research articles that I, I found, up to 100,000 Christian pastors in the United States that have been trained by FEMA to get their congregations in. They even call them camps in the event of a FEMA-declared emergency. Yeah, that's where I'm going to have to, you know, the, I have a line that I have in my head of, you know, everything goes through the logic and reason filter. Do you have that stated somewhere? Is that what you've learned, or is it actually in a, in a policy or a document somewhere? Because I'm, I'm curious hey, about that. I've heard this before. Go ahead. You know, I can email you the research. I did, you know, when I first heard it, you know, this is what okay. I do. I don't believe anything. I don't believe anything. Yeah, you like me. Yeah. So, Go ahead, show me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so then I, yeah. I researched it, and, yeah, you know, I can email you the documents. I okay. have it all on one, you know, you know, so then because I heard about Diedrich Bonhoeffer, I thought, well, that's a man I respect. And you start digging in and pretty soon you think, oh, my gosh, this is way worse than I thought. So yeah, I'll email you the document after we're done. Yeah, that sounds and, good. You know, another another one that shocked me is mm-hmm. is how the Rockefellers have infiltrated. I, I also heard this and this this was, you know, when I was in this in this pastor uh, rabbit hole. Uh, mm-hmm. The Rockefellers were funding the Christian, well, they are still funding the Christian seminaries. So think through that. Well, they fund well, the med schools, too. <laughs> You're John exactly. Rockefeller changed right. all the med schools. I didn't know he was funding the Christian missionaries. Well, you know, it's interesting. Harvard started as a, as a theology school, Harvard University, back in the 1600s. So, and that's, that, that divinity school, Harvard Divinity School, is still there. Um, do you know where the grants come from? I mean, I'm just curious if, if that's a place you've researched. That'd be the one to go to first, I would think. Well, I have not researched that specifically. I just had to prove it. You know, when I heard this about the Rockefellers funding the seminaries, I thought, well, this makes sense. But I had to prove that also. Yeah. And then it connects the dots with some of the debates going on in Christianity right now. It's like, oh, my gosh, these are dialectics that don't make any sense. And you know, this is maybe the biggest thing, you know, that I have stumbled across. So in the in the World War Two research, I had never mm-hmm. heard of the term Hegelian dialectic before. That was a new mm-hmm. term to me. Yeah, we're gonna yeah, we're gonna get into that yeah, too. <laughs> well it's it's the it's big. People don't realize how these dialectics are used to to spin us off of what we're supposed to be you know, just take, I'll give you a simple one. I mean, you're very familiar with this, I'm sure. But right now, you've got a constant barrage about something, you know, over the last couple of days about DirecTV takes takes Newsmax off. Okay, mm-hmm. so we we already are, so the, the exoteric dialectics that are used, these are the dialectics that are put in place for us to get off track 
that everybody can see. So we, we, and then we look at life through the lesser of two evils. That's how we're trained to look at life. So we have ABC, CBS, CNN are all bad, but Newsmax and Fox are good. Well, it's the lesser of two evils, people. Newsmax and Fox are not good either. They're also sponsored by Pfizer. So now we have DirecTV takes Newsmax off, and everybody, you know, got Congress in on this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yet there's a 1,000 people a day being murdered in hospitals, and we can't get that talked about. <laughs> You know, it is, I'm laughing out of irony, not out of humor, uh, but yeah. Yeah, it's, it's hysterical. You know, this, is, this is big time. I mean, this is uh-huh. what they do. They put these dialects. I would have no doubt that the government's involved with taking Newsmax down. I mean, no, surprise no, me. nothing surprises me anymore. Yeah. You know, just to uh, get I'm, us off track. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm always surprised every day that I'm still here, and I've, I've often invited the FBI KGB, who I know are listening, to just join us. Just call in, 215-383-3832. Pianchi, one of my regular callers waiting to, waiting to talk. Do you have past the top of the hour or not? I'm just curious. How much time I do you I can got? go on for a little bit, sure. Okay, good. All right, so then I'll get, I'll get some Pianchi's questions. A couple things come to mind. Um, Merck uh, was a German company uh, during Nazi Germany, a uh, huge one, if I remember. Uh, Bayer, uh, the folks that make your, your children's aspirin. Um, so the medical industry and fascism or communism have really had a long association. Have you looked into that at all as a way to control people through medicine? Didn't uh, Mao say that? It said control comes from a barrel of a gun, but it also comes through medicine. I don't know who said that. I mean, I've made the connection, but I haven't spent the time finding the documents and the specifics on it. You know, it's okay. obvious because they have created a culture. You know, so you, you mentioned about the Rockefellers. Uh, mm-hmm. Back in the early 1900s, you know, mm-hmm. they they start meds, and then of course they now we have cancer introduced, and then they fund the American Cancer Society. So that's mm-hmm. another dialectic. I mean, you have you know, the it's now the lesser of two evils. So now we're in we're all in a dialectic of cancer. Well, we don't have to be in a dialectic of cancer. There's cures for cancers already, but they got us in this dialectic. And now if I talk with 99% of people on the street and just ask the question, if you got cancer, what would you do? They would say radiation chemo because we're programmed. <laughs> you know, so yeah, um, yeah. You know, using the medical profession is no surprise. And the medical people are really zombies. And, and I can, it, you, you've um, heard of Hannah Arendt. I assume. No. No? Okay, so Hannah Arendt was, she could not wrap her head around what happened in World War II. And during the Adolf Eichmann trial, so he was one of the pencil pushers that organized the death camps. So during his trial, she could not, you know, she's trying to wrap her head around all of this. How could this possibly happen? And she coined the phrase banality of evil. Hmm. And that really helped. That really helped me understand what happened to Grace. So banality means common. So evil is so common that we don't recognize it. Yeah, people are immune so to take, it. They're desensitized. Right. Yeah. So take. Okay. On, I'll give you. We'll walk through three examples. So take the sure. public pool system. So the public pool system. You know, when I first <laughs> heard about kids graduating from kindergarten and getting trophies, I thought, oh, ha ha ha. You know, that's funny. It's, you know, it's stupid, but it's funny. And, but that was, that's a progression. So now when these kids are reminded of their assignments constantly by the teacher, they don't have any accountability. They don't, they don't get the assignment done. They get a do-over. You know, it wasn't that way when you and I were in school. Mm-hmm. So 
Now I get those kids. I own a business. I get those kids on my payroll. They cannot think. Thinking has been trained out by the public school system. That's the banality of evil. That's evil. So well, that's what the school system is for, is, is for taking away your ability to think. I mean, I mean, I know that sounds kind of crazy. Like you, you'd say, well, people think I'm crazy when I say it. It's not, but it's true. You look at the school, you look at how bright kids are before they go to school. You take, you take your average four and five-year-old. They're inquisitive. They're, 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 they ask you questions about everything. They want to know what's going on. The world is full of wonder. You know, sunrises are exciting. And then they go to school. <laughs> and then they come back zombies. You know, Absolutely. But, so that's, so the second Don't example the of school. the banality, that's yeah. right on. I mean, homeschooling should be should be off the charts. Thankfully, a lot of people have seen that during the. That's one of the benefits of the pandemic. The elderly would be another example. So when you and I were kids, mm-hmm. the lion's share of people took care of their parents. Now, just about everybody puts their parents in a nursing home. You know, mom misses the mail one day, and they put her in a dementia home. Yeah. You know, it's. It's, you know, so that's the banality of evil because now nursing homes have become really the standard of care in people's minds. So I want to apply this very specifically to my daughter, Grace, is the next one. So now the disabled and specifically mm-hmm. Down syndrome. So Down syndrome kids are murdered at the rate of 67% right now before they're born in the United States. When Grace was born on September 22nd of 2002, we had never done any of the testing. She comes out, I'm in the delivery room. I said to my wife, I think she has Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. Shortly after that, the doctors came in and said, we suspect your daughter has Down syndrome. Do you want to keep her? Mm-hmm. So uh, what were they offering that. you for choices? I mean, what, what were they, they talking about? We just said, get get the hell out of here. I mean, yeah. that's just ridiculous. Yeah, I didn't, I, I got very frustrated with that because it's not, that's not even an option. So I don't know what they were thinking at the time. You know, were we going to put her for adoption? Were we going, you know, was she going to go into sex trafficking? I don't know what they had in mind, but they certainly didn't think that we would want her. And that's, that's become commonplace. So the young couple gets pregnant. They go in and see their doctor. He says, congratulations, you're pregnant. Uh, let's schedule your amniocentesis. That amniocentesis comes back and he says, well, uh, I think your son is going to have Down syndrome. Uh, we should look at aborting him. You know, and they don't have any guilt because they don't have any roots. They trust the white coat, and that's why 67% of Down syndrome kids are aborted. So now those same young people get into a hospital setting. They're, take care, they're taking care of my daughter, Grace. 22 doctor reports were written during the seven days Grace was in the hospital. They referenced that Grace had Down syndrome 36 different times in those reports. This is something, uh, you know, we, on the one side, we have the Special Olympics, you know, on, on the side. I've been uh, around Down syndrome folks a lot of my life, neighbors, you know, friends, folks in school, things like that. It just, well, maybe not school. I don't have to think about that. But I've certainly been around Down syndrome uh, folks and folks with, with, you know, all kinds of different mental challenges. And, you know, my first thing is these are people, <laughs> you know, they are different. Okay, so what? But I've never met a Down syndrome person that wasn't the nicest, sweetest, most wonderful, unconditionally loving, like I say, brightest, most optimistic person ever. There's a reason that God puts down. There's a reason that God puts you know Down syndrome people on Earth to sort of shame the rest of us into being better people. <laughs> you know, this is the way I see it. I think that's. I think that you you said it perfectly. That's right on. Yeah. 
And so what is this push for amniocentesis? I mean, I remember before my daughter was born, we did it. And I thought, you know, am I going to abort my own daughter? No. <laughs> you know, so then why are we doing the test? So the real question is, why are we doing amniocentesis? Because the object is to either decide this, it's an abortion test is what it really is. So why don't we start Correct. calling it that? This is an abortion test. This is to decide whether your child who might be, you know, different than other kids, um, you know, on the one hand, or might be the most special person you could ever meet in your life on the other hand. And why are we even doing this test? Why aren't we talking about this in, in schools and moral places and ethic places, things like that? Why are you doing this test when the, when the, when the result is you're, you're deciding whether you're going to be aborting your kid or not? And what are you missing by not having a Down syndrome kid? I mean, you, you know, Plain normal kids out there. <laughs> the Down syndrome kids are well, special. Well, and then the young couple is programmed to trust the white coat. They've also been programmed that we need to have our perfect little life, and you know it's 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 the, it's we got to just throw it all out and go. You got to understand how we got here. We got here by rejecting God, and yeah. you know so uh, God's economy says. You reap what you sow, and this is what we've got. We've got this because we rejected God, and that's the reality of where we're at. Yeah, I want to bring Pianki. Yeah. I just get one more question first before we do. Sure. Um, Down syndrome kids. What, why? Why do we have? I mean, not, I'm not talking genetically, but what do you think the purpose of, of having having these kids come into the world is? I mean, I've stated why I think, but I'm just curious what you think. Well, I'm going to share. I'll share a story. It's several people have said this, which is interesting to me. They don't, you know, people don't know what to say when you've lost a child. So they'll say, well, you know, now that Grace is in heaven, she doesn't have Down syndrome anymore. And my what? response is, oh, I know. I, I forgive them because they don't I'm, know what to do. Yeah, but I'm sorry. I, I, I react very quickly. I just, yeah. I respond and say, I think just the opposite. I think everybody in heaven has Down syndrome. So I do think that Down syndrome kids are put on earth to give mm-hmm. us a glimpse of what love looks like, unconditional love. God's love is unconditional. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's why, you know, Grace, you know, I was, I spoke at Grace's funeral and I, I said, uh, you know, people are saying, oh, you guys did such a great job with Grace, blah, blah, blah. And I said, you don't get any credit for taking care of a kid like this. She was a, she was a gift. She was an angel. She yeah. loved me even when I was a jerk, which is most of the time. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I bet you've changed that. I bet you, you sort of reevaluate. <laughs> what, what would Grace say to me now for doing X? You know, I just yelled at somebody on the freeway. Grace would yell at me for that. For, what are you doing? What are you being such a nasty dad for? You, am I right? Yes, right on. She, yeah. she, she, uh, she, was a, she was a real gift. So yeah. I think that we get a glimpse of God's character through Down syndrome people. Yeah, I'd like to get rid of that whole amniocentesis thing and, and just, you know, we need, we, need a, we need a different name than Down syndrome. That just sounds so evil and, and derogatory. We've got to have yeah, a better, I, better I, way. I have one. What is it? Uh, it's called up syndrome. Well, there you go. Makes sense to me. Let me bring on. Uh, she, she, uh, she brought my spirits up every time. Oh yeah, I mean you can't help but be optimistic when you when you're around a down, you know, uh, an up syndrome person. I, I got to make a new because we do a lot of language change around here. You know, I mean I'm calling him Doctor Fascist for a reason, but I mean I even change things like like fossil fuels to organic fuels, and we have a all kind of GOP as the gelding old party. You know, we, you know, or my favorite one, you, you can use that gelding party GOP. My favorite one is I don't use the term rhino anymore. I, I call them transgender Democrats. <laughs> Grace would love your. I, I love that kind of humor. Grace played off of it too. She would love that. 
Some yeah, I wish I met her. Explained yeah. to her, but she would she would get this stuff. So thank yeah. you for those. Oh, no, no problem. We talk about Jonas more often. You're welcome to call anytime. Pianchi, um, you get an incredible opportunity here. Uh, talk to uh, Scott Shara. Um, feel free. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, that uh, act that you made mention of, that uh, PREP Act or Public Readiness and uh, Emergency Preparation Act. Yes, yes. That was inserted by Republicans back in 2005 under the Bush administration. It came in with the defense appropriation bill. And it was the one that gave that blanket immunity for pandemics. And you know what else can be included as an epidemic? Diabetes, obesity, meth, and even arthritis. And you had the Senators Harkins of Idaho and several by 17 other Democrats that tried to get them to take it out. It just goes to show you that evil is not assigned to any skin color nor any political affiliation. It's evil. And the people that benefit from this, they have the ability to influence and coerce and buy just about anybody. Yeah. I am scratching their with that. that with that assessment, and you're right on. I mean, anybody that puts their faith in Democrat or Republican is a fool. They're all in on this. It's all evil. So that is that's a fantastic comment. It doesn't surprise me in, that any administration would, you know, these series of laws, like you mentioned in 2005, you go all the way back to 1969 is how far I've gone back with the laws mm-hmm. that have been put in place. And they're all in on it. They put in a series of laws to be able to to legally operate this uh, COVID narrative, and they've crossed every T and dotted every I. And the only way you'd be able to sue them, you'd have to be able to show willful misconduct and uh, omissions. But just gross negligence is not enough. So, uh, I mean, it's a shame. But it's true, and, and one of the reasons why I come is it's able to go as far is because the public is ignorant, and actually things as it uh, applies to politics is backwards. It's backwards. Citizens don't put, have their control. The politicians have control over the citizens. But I'm sorry to take up too much time. Oh, no, you're fine. No, and uh, I want to get back to Scott anyway, because I'm sure it's his reaction to that. And I want to tell him a bit about what we do, a little bit more into it. But Pianchi's uh, it, absolutely right. People let themselves be controlled. Scott? I agree 100%. Uh, and, you know, when you start realizing, uh, like the caller just said about, you know, you the, the standard for suing them is willful misconduct. Okay, so then you think, wow, that's quite a high standard, but it's way worse than that. It isn't even the standard that you get to because you really can't sue them. They set this all up ahead of time. In Wisconsin, for example, where we're from, Uh uh, Grace was 19. She's a legal adult. So how um, people sue in a case like this is you have medical malpractice, of course. uh, You have wrongful death. You have loss of companionship. That's the one attorneys usually want to go in under because that's where you have a lot higher claim. Well, they've limited the claim to $750,000. Loss of companionship does not apply to adults. So we have no loss of companionship claim. 
so in the attorney's limit on the so the max you can receive is 750 they only can take 250 you can't even assign your you know so we're not after any money you can have everything i don't care i'm after exposure the attorney can't even take the whole 750 by statute you know, so you know everything is against the citizen everything is for the cabal well yeah and the courts of government courts <laughs> you know, and that's they've bad. even taken away, you know, they've taken away the jury trial in most of these cases. These civil cases don't have a jury when they should. You just have a judge. Uh, when you do have a jury trial, the judge says that you can't uh, question the law. You know, we'll tell you what the law is. We will instruct you on what the law is. We will instruct you on what you can and can't do. That's illegal, too. You know, our, our mission statement here, um, and, and Pianca, feel free to join in on this part, because this is what really what we do here a lot, um, is that we the people give our consent to be governed through writing the laws by which we are governed. And we have the power through juries to nullify the laws by which we do not consent to be governed. And so if you combine the power of the jury, which is supreme to the judge, you know, because we're the people, we, juries represent the people and judges represent the government. And if you take the power of us actually writing the laws that we consent to be governed, you've got a revolution, a very peaceful computer-driven, you know, radio-driven, but nonetheless, a revolution of thought, that we write the laws that we consent to be governed as we the people. And so what I'm hoping for you is, you know, when you want to do something you know, about this, when you, you, you quote all these laws and things like that and say that we can't change them, I'm saying, yes, we can. And it's going to take millions of us to do it. I mean, literally millions of us to do this. But if enough people send in links to bills to Congress and media and the pollsters start picking up on it, we know the candidates are not the way to go. Because even if you get a, a good candidate, they don't stay good for long because their loyalty is to the party uh, and to the lobbyists who give them the money. So they're no good. So that doesn't work. We know the elections are stolen so that you can't even get good candidates anymore. So that's not going to work. So the only thing you can really work with, um, the thing that is absolutely open that you can see is the law because they have to print the laws, print the bills. So you can actually see what they're doing. But if we print the bills ourselves and send them in and say, here, this is what we want. Now we're in an entirely different world. And we reverse, the, as I mentioned earlier in the show, from special interest to government to people, we change it so the laws come from people to government over special interests. And that would include Pfizer, which I think is run by total really, psychopaths, quite frankly. Really <laughs> Go ahead, like that, that, uh, well, the approach is you know, nobody can find fault with the approach, less one thing. How do you get the people in, into the process because that's a good question the, <laughs> we're still working on that part the, you know, um well just give you a, a very pointed example in grace's case so mm-hmm. they put a do not resuscitate order on grace that's illegal mm-hmm. state statute 154 in wisconsin lays out the process it's very logical the mm-hmm. first the patient or the power of attorney has to request the dnr uh, then the doctor has to educate the pros and cons of a DNR, then there has to be mm-hmm. a document executed, then there has mm-hmm. to be a bracelet on the patient, and then in the event that the patient or the advocate want to override the DNR, they can do that orally at any time. That's the significant. That's a big deal. That's a, that mm-hmm. is just logic. It's logic codified in state statute. Okay, so now in Grace's case, this is a this is a big deal. So I wrote to I filed a uh, complaint with the Department of Safety and Professional Services in Wisconsin. That's the organization who regulates the doctors in Wisconsin. They did what they called an investigation. Of course, it's a sham. So I sent the complaint in December 2nd, 2021. January 20th, they sent me a letter that said they did a 
investigation. The doctor did nothing wrong. So I mean, that's the first day I was started to be woken up because I thought they're all in on this. Because how can you say he did no wrong? I've got the statute right in front of me. I found out an investigative reporter flew to Appleton, Wisconsin to interview me for a DNR documentary. And he started mm-hmm. poking around with the department. So he asked mm-hmm. the questions. Like you said, you got to ask the right question. He said, was the DNR statute suspended during COVID? No, it was not suspended. Okay, well, how come you, you know, what was your basis of concluding the doctor did no wrong? They produced a seven-page letter from the doctor's attorney in response to my complaint. There's at mm-hmm. least 50 lies in that letter. I never saw the letter until the, the investigative reporter found it or they gave it to him in August. Okay, so if you're doing an objective investigation, I should have received that letter. Mm-hmm. That letter was dated January 3rd. Their report was January 20th. So he keeps poking even further. They sent him a letter dated December 5th. So this is just two months ago that said, I'm, gonna, I'm reading this, Chapter 154, that's the DNR statute in Wisconsin, Chapter 154 of the Wisconsin statute does not apply to physicians operating in hospital, non-emergency room settings, such as the one in question. They're saying a doctor can put a DNR on a person unilaterally at any time. So we and know that's what they're going to go the by. Law. Yeah, that's something we need to change. So, so in other have, words, we already yeah. have the law. That's the problem, Greg. We already have the law. So how okay, do um, you... you Yes, I'd, I I'd conf- like your comment on that. Well, I might be a little confused here. So, so the, the law says that you, and he had all these exceptions. So the DNR, which is do not resuscitate, can only be given under certain circumstances. It can be revoked and everything else. And then you said, and this is where I'm getting a little confused, but it also says in the law that it can be done in non-emergency uh, situations. So there's a conflict no, right there, that's right? Not the, so, that's not the law. That's what was that? the opinion of the Department of Safety and Professional Services. Oh, so they made it up. They're... They made this up. That's not the law. Okay. But this, yeah. is, this so, is what the regulatory agency is telling the doctors. Yeah, that's a problem, too. Uh, so, so here's our situation. Uh, we have bad laws, and I try to correct those, and we're still working on building momentum and getting, getting out in the news and, and telling you folks, that, you know, like you particularly, who can share what we do, and I'll be sharing what you do because you're on the show. I mean, the podcast is going to be on here for years and years and years. Um, but, uh, but the question is, what do we do when the law is good? You know, and, and people are doing bad things with it. So that's another situation. Yeah. I'm not sure how to handle that, uh, except individual cases working by getting rid of people. We need to expose people. We need a real media to expose these people. Like what 60 Minutes used to do, you know, back when Mike Wallace yeah. was there. You know, he was good. His son's an idiot. Um, but, um, yeah. but, but Mike was pretty good about investigating things. He actually was a journalist. You know, the guys that went to, uh, like, Morley Safer, you know, was a Vietnam War correspondent. Uh, so was, uh, what's his name? Uh, Andy Rooney, you know, these were good journalists. I mean, real journalists. We've lost real journalists. Uh, there's some good documentary people out there. But the thing is, how do you, if the law is bad, you change the law. If the law is good and the people are bad, you have to change the people. But the problem is when the people are literally making stuff up and nobody knows they're doing it, like these regulatory agencies, I think the whole model of, of regulatory agencies needs to be changed. And I'm not sure what to replace it with. But this is where the real power is in this country. It's the, it's the nameless, faceless bureaucrat. It's the person behind the desk. It's the person behind the white coat that allows the white coat to do what they do because they know that the regulator is behind them or the licensing board or something else. This is where the problems are. So we need to change how doctors are licensed. Go ahead. What do you think? Oh, it's right on. 
Uh, you're right okay. on. I mean, this is how World War II happened, not literally the war, but, I mean, this is how the Holocaust happened, is the pencil pushers uh, mm-hmm. just thought they were doing their doing their job. And, you know, so there's a lot of doctors and nurses who are just think they're doing their job. They're just following orders. The Milgram obedience experiment really uh, You should tell that story. This is a big deal. In 1963, the Milgram obedience experiment was conducted, again, from the Adolf Eichmann trial because people couldn't wrap their head around it. So they had 40 people, 20 of them were participants, 20 actors, and they set up this experiment. The actors were all hooked up to electrical leads. Of course, they were fake because they were actors just to see what would happen. So Mm -hmm. the actors were asked a series of questions. Every time they answered a question wrong, the instructor told the participant to give the actor a jolt. And Uh if they answered six questions in a row wrong, the jolt was enough to kill the actor. And two-thirds of the participants would kill the actor. They pushed the button to kill the actor just because they Uh were instructed to do so. Uh And that's insane. And that was 60 years ago, back when we had some moral fabric to our country. Go ahead, Bianchi. There's another rare book out there called Conjuring Hitler, How the United States and Britain Created the Third Reich. You might want to get that and read that, too. I've never heard that one. That's interesting. But it's the same psychology. You know, the psychology of, of, of Nazism is the same psychology we have now. In fact, we have a lot of the same people. You know, we, the, there's a reason why the CIA brought Nazis over to our government, you know, as models. There's a reason we have the, the 1938 gun control laws, our 1968 law. There's a, there's a lot of transfer that went on after that. It's still, it's still government. Government is evil and needs to be controlled, needs to be limited uh, as much as possible to only do the things that keep, you know, yourself and your property safe. Uh, from criminals, but not so much that you have, you know, any kind of excess government control. And that's the point of liberty. We talked about this when we wrote the Australian Bill of Rights, that liberty exists where you have only enough laws to protect you, your family, and your property, or so that you can protect it yourself, um, but not so many laws that government has any more control over you than absolutely necessary. And we're not at that point. We're way on the side of totalitarianism. Right on. Yeah. Yeah, We have our moments here. That's right on. (laughs) We think about this stuff a lot. Um, this is fascinating. Pianchi, do you have another question? I've got, uh, I've got some more things here, and I don't know how much time Scott has. I really appreciate your extra time, though. You're welcome. Well, you know, the, the, the Democrats tried to put that, to change the uh, PrEP Act. Uh, you had uh, Harkin Kennedy, and I can't think of another person. And you had members of Democrat colleagues that tried to ch- change it in 2006. So what but, is, um, let's ask the big question. What does the government get out of this? What does the government get out of, of euthanizing you know, folks that they consider disabled, that I consider special and amazing? It's not the government. You know, it's the same thing you got going on in Ukraine today. You got at that time, and see, here's the thing. Like I said, these things switch back and forth. One time you have Democrats, next time you have Republicans. It doesn't yeah, matter. In some yeah. cases. <clears throat> But uh, the thing is, is that they get some uh, financial benefits from the people that's going to stand to gain the most. And another thing, there's a difference between identification and immunity. The government can provide identification, but immunity is a whole different thing. And people don't, I mean, you should know that. 
Yeah, let's, I want to hold that just for a second. I want to talk a little bit about that because just from Scott's perspective, perspective and then I want to tell him about our, our, our Australian Bill of Rights because it applies to us here. Immunity. This is one of the big problems, Scott, right, that the government is immune from their actions, that, they, that the courts are immune from their actions. <clears throat> They've immunized the hospitals from their actions because it's under the PrEP Act. So they give immunity from the horrible things that they want them to do. This is all part of the same thing, right, Scott? Uh, I agree. Yeah, I agree 100 percent. It's, um, you know, look at the the, the uh, vaccine immunity that was placed and put in place in 1986. I mean, that that is mm-hmm. maybe the worst law that's been ever passed in the history of the United States, because how can you have no accountability? I own a business. If we mm-hmm. screw up, you know, there's the law of consequence of choice, right? You screw up, you got to make it right. But they don't have to make anything right. So that's what we've changed. Yeah, we do have a vaccine bill that puts liability on them. And that's something that you can share that anybody can share. I'll send it to you. I read that on your website. Oh, you did? I saw it on your website. Yeah, I thought thought that Uh was fantastic. I mean, it's very simple. Yeah. You know, no one can disagree with it. But it would never get passed because everybody's bought. Well, yeah, see, this uh, is why we go to Congress last. So in order for these laws to pass, this is what I've determined, uh, is that you go to the people first, uh, then the media, yes. and then, then the government. So the people, we've got to share it with everybody. And as many people as possible to, to share, let's just take that bill, okay? Uh, and then we need to, the, the people to then share it with media. So look, we want you to report on this story. You know, we need to turn uh, journalists into conservative news advocates or patriotic news advocates. So in other words, they report the news, and then they report the, the, the solution that's best for us. You know, in this, in this case, it would be vaccine product liability. My donut shop has more liability than Pfizer. That's irrational. <laughs> it's, it's, I, a, go ahead. I agree. Well, it's, it's, yeah. the thing is, is it's, it's even worse than that, because if they requirement to produce a vaccine, they don't have a requirement to test a vaccine. You know, it's, so the caller asked, what does the government get out of it? It's beyond mm-hmm. that. That's the wrong question. What's the question? Because this is well, this is satanic. So okay. This is ta- this is a this is a um, a fight for men. That's what's going on here. A fight for the sequence of for men's souls. I mean, Satan is after okay. the souls. Right. And you know, so it isn't about a financial gain. They have all the money. They you know think they they lie about the financial situation. You know the. The Medicare and Medicaid people in the United States account for 39% of the federal budget. That was before COVID. It's going to be more after that. So they use that as an excuse to do what they're doing. Um, but we already know they can print as much money as they want anytime. So why not just print more money? You know, I'm being facetious with that, but I mean, they have a fiat no, we, currency. I agree. You know, so, so they're lying to people that we need to control these costs because when it's mm-hmm. a cost that they want to fund, like Ukraine, they just print money to fund it. So it's completely ridiculous. It, and the detail that they've gone through and how many people are in on this, it's clearly no no man could organize this. It has to be a spiritual force that's doing it. And that's why I see this as this is really a, the true battle for good versus evil, God's good versus Satan's evil. And that's what's going on here. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think first thing we need to, and I've talked to a lot of people about this, is we need a, a second medical system. 
So you've got the government medical system, you've got the Center for Medicare Systems, you know, basically mandating things through things that they'll reimburse, which includes, you know, all, I think it's like $130,000 for, for a death as listed as COVID from the PCR test to the, to the death certificate, you know, through remdesivir, ventilators, the whole bit. There's money. There's incentive. And the hospital administrators, they want that money. So, you know, people, are, I hate to say this, are worth more, you know, dead than alive to the hospitals. Well, that, that creates a whole, you know, disincentive to actually doing the right thing, except for this one hospital. I want to, I'm, another time I want to get you on, I'll find out the good hospital. I want to get them on and find out what they're doing. I think we need to start rewarding the people that are doing this right as well as criticizing the other ones. Um, but I want to introduce you something. Well, let me get a comment on that first. That was, that was a lot right there. And then I got to introduce you to something brand new. What's neat is that this is this alternative system is happening. Uh, there's okay. a couple of clinics already in Wisconsin. Uh, proactively, <laughs> I went to one that's near us, and they checked out of the system. They started the doctor started their own clinic, and, and as people wake up, I mean that's that's going to happen, and it's it's a it's a good thing. We have some resources on Grace's website uh, to get people into local clinics in their area that are not bought, and that's critical. You know the the um, the eventual hospital stay is a different ball game, and that requires uh, advanced preparation, and that's a big deal. We did our first hospital rescue on November fifth, and tell me about uh, that. We can talk about, but that was yeah. What's deal. that? So what is it? Well, what's going on is the is the um, the um, public health emergency, which was first implemented for for the pandemic on January 31st of 2020. That was just mm-hmm. extended for another 90 days on January 11th of 2023. Well, the extension before that was on the anniversary of Grace's death, October 13th of 22. So wow. we knew this is still going on, meaning that they're still incentivizing remdesivir, still incentivizing ventilators, um, the whole protocol. Roughly at that point, when Biden said on national TV on September 19th that the pandemic is over, I looked mm-hmm. up the statistics right away and saw there's still a thousand people a day being murdered. So anyway, if we jump forward into November, we have, I mentioned earlier, we have 17 billboards up in our area. A lady mm-hmm. saw the billboard. She said, do you know this guy that has these up? And so she eventually got a hold of me quickly because her, her uh, brother was in the hospital. So on November 3rd, she called me and said, my brother's in the hospital, he's disabled. And I said, well, what does he have? Well, he got diagnosed with COVID. He's got spinal muscular atrophy. I said, I don't know what that is. And so she explained it's a degenerative disease. He's 44 years old. He only weighs 40 pounds. And I said, you know, I'm going to sound crazy to you, but they're going to try to kill him. And to my surprise, she was open-minded. And so we talked for about a half an hour. She said, what do I do? And I said, "Um, no DNR no remdesivir, no ventilator, no jabs. I said, is your personality strong enough to do this? Because you've got to be in there not to hold his hand to keep him, you know, uh, comfortable. It's to save his life. And she said, yes, I can do it. November 4th, the next day, she texted me at 11 o'clock. I was already in bed, 11 p.m. She said he was already given remdesivir. Wow. I got a hold of her first thing Saturday morning. I said, this went from urgent to it's an emergency. Mm-hmm. And so his, her brother asked if I would come to the hospital. Uh, so, I mean, I said, yes, I'll be there in a half hour. So I drove to Green Bay. Um, you can't be prepared for what you see. You know, I've never met a 40-pound man before that's all contorted and um, near death. 
So I uh, got into the room uh, on the way. Well, before that, I called. I've met a lot of people in this fight, just like you have, Greg. Mm-hmm. And so I got a hold of uh, Laura Bartlett, Greta from Protocol Kills. They've already done hospital rescues. I needed coaching. I never did, never did one. So uh, Laura emailed me the, the form for uh, medical directives. I uh, swung by a credit union on the way to the hospital, got that printed, get into the hospital, meet Robert. I immediately got down by his bed, gave him a hug and knelt and prayed with him. And he said, he looked me in the eye and said, Scott, please don't leave me. He was a man. He was near death. Mm-hmm. So then before we, we went through the entire form with him, made sure he agreed with what we're saying, you know, we're stopping everything. And then I got a hold of Peter McCullough. Uh, he was. He said, "Get a hold of Paul Merrick. I'm busy today, so I got a hold of Paul Merrick." And Paul Merrick called the room five minutes later, and he walked me through. I had him on speakerphone so the family could hear. He walked me through the dosages that we need to give him of ivermectin, NAC, CBD, you know, zinc. So you know, I, I called my wife. I said, "Bring in my NAC, my ivermectin, you know, all my stuff." And she said, how can I come in the hospital with that stuff? You know, when Grace was in the hospital, everything was on lockdown. You couldn't get in. I said, just Mm -hmm. come in with it. We have complete freedom. So she came in with that. Then we had the meeting with the doctor. The doctor comes in. You can't make this up. He's in this space suit. So now (laughs) you go through the medical director's form with him. And now he knows the gig is up. The next time he came in, he didn't have anything on. And so it shows you he was doing this just create a fear. He told right. Robert, Robert is the man we rescued, he said, you have COVID, but the good news is we have an antiviral, and you'll be fine in three days. Most of my patients are better in two. That antiviral was remdesivir. Remdesivir has a 75% kill rate, three doses and more. They had already given him the equivalent of six doses. They gave him three doses, but it was really times two because of his body weight. Right. So, I mean, that's why he was near death. So we gave, you know, my wife came in, we, we got the concoction together. He's fed through a tube in his stomach. We got him out of bed, bathed him, and we watched the man come alive. It was a miracle. And then I'll just share two other pieces of this so people can get a grip as to how serious this is. So, I mean, a form can never protect a person. So, I mean, right in the form. So, I mean, we've gone through the form with the doctor. You know, it says no, no vaccines, no jabs. 45 minutes later, the nurse came in with a COVID flu jab for Robert. And you said? And so, of course, we said, yeah, we've already gone through this. Get out of here. Yeah. When we're all done, it's 11 and a half hours later, we're just, we're physically removing him. They wouldn't help. The doctor said, I'm not signing any. He's, he's leaving AMA, which means against medical advice. They wouldn't give any of the prescriptions, nothing. They wouldn't even remove the IVs. So at shift change, a nurse, a kind nurse, she was willing to remove the IV. So now we're all, we're with the family. My wife and I are with the family, got everything packed up. We're ready to walk out. And the nurse is in the room. I said, I may never have this opportunity again. So I would like to ask you a question. I said, you know, I said, you don't have to acknowledge this, but I said, you know, they were trying to kill him. How can you participate in this? And what happened? So now this is the time where I say, well, why don't you have me on next week for the rest of the story, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, you, 
<laughs> oh, he's good. Well, this guy's good. He knows exactly. Uh, yeah. Well, after 400 shows, I'm sure you're an expert at this. Okay. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for the continuing saga of Scott Shera and his medical reform program. And now the next exciting adventure of Hospital Kills. So Hospital Kills is, uh, I guess you got to go. But that's a, that's a, I want to look those folks up. I want to get them on too. But this is it. Rescue is the way to go. We have to rescue people from medicine. We have to save people from doctors. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but that's exactly what we're doing. We need an alternative medical system. We need a separate blood supply that is free of, of COVID yeah. shots and spike proteins. We need a completely separate system. And we need to have, I'm working on, I'm thinking of a bill that uh, makes all health costs that are paid for personally uh, tax credit. So you have, a, you have a huge tax credit for anything. You can write, you might be able to write off, and it wouldn't limit uh, to your income. It would be tax credits beyond income. So if you have to pay for things that are outrageously expensive, okay, fine. Then that's going to be reimbursed by the government. Your choice with a private doctor. So we need to, we need, we need to completely rechange how medicine's done. So in, the, in whatever minute or two you have left, um, tell me anything you want and uh, give all the contact information you want. Thank you for being so on the show. I'm going to tell you what. So you're welcome. Yeah. What the nurse said. So I'm going to tell people what the nurse said. She said, okay, "I'm from fine. the Philippines. I'm, I'm uh-huh. from the Philippines on a visa, and if I don't do what they say, they'll ship me back." But That's why all the foreign nurses were brought in. That's why we've we've heard stories about this. We have uh, one of our folks, Josie, uh, has a uniform store and works directly with hospital people. She said, "There's all kinds of people, um, foreign folks, that are coming here to work in the hospitals. That's why. So they hold a visa over yeah. them. That's this extortion." That's this death by extortion. Wow. It's terrible. So please visit Grace's website, ouramazinggrace.net. Uh, this battle we're in is physical, for one. That's why we're telling the story. It's also spiritual. And if you're not right with God, now's the time. I mean, time is, I, I see time is short. We have we have a little window here. And we're all trying to make a difference, Greg and I. And thanks for everybody listening. I appreciate you, Greg. I appreciate you too. Thank you for telling the story. And like I said, I know it's difficult. And I know you just you're you're an absolute hero. And uh, now let me see. Let's give him a round of applause. Now, where's my where's my button here, real quick, before he disappears? There Uh-oh. we go. <laughs> Keep doing what you're doing, Scott. It's been a pleasure. Thank Thanks. you. Same to you, Greg. Bye. All right. Goodbye now. Wow. <laughs> you know, I, when I got into radio, I never thought. Um, that I would be this involved, this committed, this emotionally um, just put through, you know, stuff. And it, but it's all for the right reasons. It's all, it's all good. It's all because we need to do what we do here. Uh, and so this is fascinating. Pianchi, uh, any, any initial reactions here? This is, this is another one of these incredible days. You know, we had Ashley Babbitt's mom, you know, a couple of days ago. Uh, Ashley was murdered by uh, Capitol Hill police, Michael J. Byrd. We had, uh, we just had Scott Sharon. In fact, next time I get him on, I'll, I'll talk about, I'd love to get both those people on together, actually. It'd be really interesting. But uh, we had Scott Sharon, whose daughter was murdered in the hospital. My friend Kurt, and I talked about earlier in the show, was murdered with, uh, with an overdose of morphine. Um, Peter, Eric Colley, who created our website, was murdered in his hospital, you know, with remdesivir ventilators, you know. And then uh, and I had Dr. Peter Pry, who I think was killed by the COVID jab brought his cancer back and he was dead within six months. So this story affects me personally. I was almost killed in the hospital by blood thinners, you know, when my chest filled with fluid. So I know about this kind of stuff. I was there and had to tell the doctors, I said, look, you're draining all that fluid out of my chest. I am not going to go through this any longer. Take the stuff out. I don't care what your protocols say. And it was a good decision. Pianchi? Yeah. Pretty interesting day. Yeah, day. Yeah. It did. Oh, it literally did. No, I would have died. No, I would have been, uh, been dead in a day or two. Uh, especially if they put me on a ventilator, and I already been on a ventilator. You know, for the surgery, I was clinically dead for four hours, 
and then they come back and, and they, you know, of course they never suggested, it's interesting, they never suggested a ventilator because they knew what the problem was. They said the x-rays, my chest was filling with fluid. It wasn't inside my lungs, so it was outside. It was in the chest cavity, was four and a half liters, which is what, a couple of gallons of, fluid, of blood and whatever else was in there that they took out. I got news for you too. Having your lungs reinflate is one of the most painful experiences uh, I've ever had. That's excruciating. It's the only time I actually took the painkillers that they, yeah, that your they recommended. Yeah, you get tired and warm out. Then when you come off of it, then your muscles are jacked. Whatever it was, all the air coming back into your lungs. Of course, now, you know, it, it's fascinating. Now I'm, you know, bike riding, hitting the gym, and I'm doing all, you know, a lot of physical stuff, much more than a lot of my contemporaries at the age of 63, you know, but uh, I can't. So the surgery was, was, was a great idea. That worked out well. No problems with the surgery, although it took a long time to recover. My problem was they almost killed me with the drugs afterwards. So I know, you know, when I hear stories of, uh, uh, like, Scott's with his daughter, what do you think, let me ask you about Down syndrome. I mean, we need, like I say, we need a better name for it, but have you ever met a Down syndrome person that didn't brighten your day, that you wasn't know. excited to see you, that wasn't, you know, just, you knew there was something special about them. And the idea that all these kids are being aborted just because of Down syndrome, we need more Down syndrome people. They brighten yeah, our lives. A friend, of my daughter, a friend of my daughter had Down syndrome. Uh-huh. But the... Uh, no, they did kill our daughter. And you know the thing about that, that you got a guard standing outside, and he just standing there like a bump on a log in the following orders. But, uh, you know, that's so cool. So, so what's the difference? And, and like I say, you, get the, yeah. you know, we need to look at the – I'm going to try to investigate who was on the Senate Republicans, and I bet you it was uh, Boehner. And uh, what's the guy that just turtle? What do we call her? Oh, Mitch McConnell. He had a turtle. <laughs> McConnell. Yeah. This was in 2005, December uh-huh. 2005, just before they would have recessed for Christmas. Uh-huh. And it was defense appropriation bill, and uh, they snuck that this preparation, this prep act, in there. And the prep act does exactly what uh, we know it does. It gave the manufacturers. Uh, immunity from liability and uh, on drugs that had not been approved, have not went through the testing process where they could use it. They could declare an emergency, an epidemic emergency with the flu at the time. This was before COVID, but it seemed like the media was getting prepared for it. And, you know, the other things, as I said before, that's included in the epidemic can be obesity, diabetes, it's the arthritis, and uh, meth. So now we see meth here of recently becoming what it is. We know what diabetes is. So, uh, you know, you just got to be cognizant of what the possibilities may be. And also we got to work to stop this. Mm-hmm. Yep, time for the market to open. <laughs> There's the bell. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's what we do, you know, and, and, you know, talking to Scott, there's a, there's a problem, you know, like I say, we can correct bad laws by what we do by writing better laws. We can't fix bad people. We just have to replace them with good people. And if people are not following laws, you know, so the, the, there's two parts to this, there's the human element, you know, and then there's the, the statute, you know, or even the constitutional amendment. So I, you know, it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of uh, exposure and a lot of journalists that actually journal. 
uh, and it's going to take a lot of reporting, a lot of change of attitudes, you know, and everything from you got to get rid of the private, the, the public schools. You got you can't have governments educate because they indoctrinate. You know, we need a society that re- that allows people the freedom to pick any medical care they want, you know, and even have the freedom to be wrong and uh, it, or even what the government thinks is wrong because it might be right. You know, we, we need an alter we need a, a completely separate medical system. You know, do you want, it's like, it's like schools, you know, do you want a government school or a private school? Do you want government medicine or private medicine? I mean, that's where we're going. That's where we're headed here. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's what I say yeah, when I say it. draw the line in the sand. You, yeah. you can't be arguing with these two. You wear yourself completely out. You will not be able to enjoy any of the virtues of life and living for trying mm-hmm. to explain the folks. I get sick and tired of this stuff. It's just you. I don't, they I just, don't learn. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't explain it. Uh, you know, I was on a show last night, actually. Um, actually, I'll tell you, it was, I, was, I was on Jerome Bell's show last night for, for like an hour and a half of my half-hour interview. And we were talking about education. And I made the point. You know, I said, you people are, are thinking, you're thinking groupthink. You know, what society needs, what, what uh, you know, what, you know, an educated population. And we have to do this. And, you know, and, and some kids, you know, have homes that aren't as good as other homes. I said, you're all, I said, education is individual. I said, this isn't, this isn't a groupthink problem. Education has to be considered at the individual level, created for the individual by the parents and the students themselves. That's the only way out of this. And whether they have homeschool or government school, which I hate, or a private school or some combination of the above or tutors or individual schools like an acting school or a dance class or, or a sports team or, or, you know, go hang out at the, the local, you know, garage, you know, and, and learn a trade, you know, be, do an apprenticeship. You know, I mean, these things are all education. I said education is a totality. It's not, it doesn't just take place in a government school. And it's not for society. It's for the individual. And they said, well, we need this, you know. And they kept looking at, well, we need the institution and we need this. I'm like, you, I see you're still I thinking. On there. Well, I listened to it last night. But, you know, I mean, I was, I'm, I'm probably being a little more dramatic now than I was then. I was, I was being, <laughs> well, I was well, if you got something you know. about education going on, let me know. Oh, okay. But well, his well, thing, I'll, like journalist water. Oh, I'll introduce you to Jerome. You should, you've, you've talked to him on the show here. I'm sure he remembers you. He follows yeah. up. Yeah. But, but it, like it was, I think uh, I did too. Yeah. Jerome ran for Congress. He was the one that didn't get money from uh, – well, there's, there's two people that were considering uh, citizen legislation as part of their campaign or actually used it as part of, the, of their campaign and would have introduced it into Congress. And it's just – it's kind of interesting. Both were conservative – uh, or are, excuse me, they're still here, are conservative black men who served in the military for an extended period of time. So they're, they're both patriots. I just, you know, Calvin Wimdish and Jerome Bell. Jerome was Navy and Calvin was Army. You know, and it, it's fascinating that uh, these two individuals in different parts of the country, one in Florida, one up in Virginia, um, you know, from, from military backgrounds, independent backgrounds, patriot backgrounds, are the two people that considered Running of all the people that ran for office last time, these are the two that wanted to run on citizen legislation and bring it directly to Congress. I find that interesting. Well, they probably they probably see the good in it, mm-hmm. and Absolutely. you know, just like right now, you got them attacking Santos because of him wanting to remove uh, these studies out of uh, the school that caused this division and indoctrination. And now he's being attacked on that as being racist and so forth. You got Sharpton, you got Crump, and them showing up at rallies and so forth. The people, black people, are being totally bamboozled. Yeah, but we, we, but then you have to you have to unbamboozle them. <laughs> you know, we we need we need a counterforce. We need uh, you know what happened to uh, where's Kanye West or Ye? You know, where's where's his money? Where's his advertising campaign? Where's where his billboards? Something wrong you know, with him too. 
But we can't yeah. bamboozle. They've been trying to do that forever. It just it's, it's, it, it, as soon as you clear the stadium out, you can open the gates and fill the stadium up with the next group and then the next group. You just don't have that kind of life. The only people that you can protect mm-hmm. is your own children and nieces and, and nephews. Grand yeah, that's why, I my da- that's why I taught my daughter how to think. <laughs> you know, I didn't tell her what to think. Uh, she told me what she thinks. Actually, it worked out really well. But, I mean, I, I started her debating with me, you know, as soon as she could talk. You know, she was, and, and so it was fascinating. So uh, that, that's, a, that's a huge thing you can do. And there's one of the things that came up last night. Well, you know, parents, you know, we need the schools to educate, you know. And they said, well, some parents aren't good at it. She, they said, in fact, one guy said that most parents, you know, over like 60% are incapable of educating their kids. I said, what? You know, I'm thinking to myself, that was being nice last night. I really was because I was the guest. But if I go back, you know, now that I know the well, environment. He's pretty, much, he, he's pretty much on point. You know why? Because they came up through the same system. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Let me um, let's switch. In. We're, we're anybody wants to call in now two one five three eight three three eight three two. We're totally open. Um, so I'm glad you're here, Pianki, because I didn't. You know, I had my third uh, hour guest uh, cancel, and I had extra time, and I, I want to make sure we uh, we can talk about anything now. Yeah. Did you see the Trump deposition? I think I sent it to you. Um, you might have. Let's say what okay. I want to do. Hold off on that just for a second. I want to talk about DeSantis for a minute. And the reason I want to talk about DeSantis is he's okay. about uh, a mile away from me right now. <laughs> he's in downtown Milton. You know, and uh, he's and I'm in the historic district, and he is too. He's at my favorite place, you know, in all of Milton, the Imogene Theater. It's a 1912 theater. It's old style. Uh, it's it's it, what they call intimate theater. In other words, the crowd's like four feet from the performers, you know, and they have a little balcony, and it's this gorgeous old place. It was made the same year that the Titanic sank, so 1912. We're talking two years before World War One. And he's there right now. And uh, you know, had I known, <laughs> so this is a, so all those folks that knew about it ahead of time and didn't tell me, thanks. I would have scheduled the show uh, either to broadcast live from there or, or at least I would have you know, put it off for a couple hours. I want to go talk to him because you know, we do things that he should know about. And I'm trying to make contact with folks in his office. But, you know, the, the gatekeepers, you know, the minions are always there. So here's my question for you. For what you were just talking about with Ron DeSantis, that they're trying to call him a racist and he doesn't know what he's doing. And, you know, he's, he's a power hungry, you know, he's a mega Republican, which means he's a patriot. All <laughs> right. Um, I can translate these words. Well, Scott Cavoto is kind of funny when I was translating. But that's the one hand. So that's the Democrats who are attacking him. On the other hand, the same Democrats, I believe, are behind pushing him to run against Donald Trump. So you've got two very – and a lot of – and the Republican, the, those are the Republicans that hate Trump, the, the, the rhinos, which we call transgender Democrats. So he's got transgender Democrats. He's got Marxist Democrats uh, and media. This is huge push to push Ron DeSantis you know, to, to run against Trump at the same time as they're, as they're bringing him down because they call him a racist, sexist, homophobe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What's going on? What do you think? What's your take on this? Well, the senators need some people around him that can say what they need to be saying, like the Democrats okay. do. Democrats bring out certain people, certain ethnic groups, individuals, mm-hmm. when the time is right. And Republicans don't do that. At least I say conservatives don't do it. So they need he need to have people around him that mm-hmm. can speak in a certain language. <clears throat> Just like this deal with these Memphis cops. Mm-hmm. See, I know what was going on there and it's turning out to be just that. But the that's how they get him. They bring certain people up there, then he frees it. Uh, it, ain't, it ain't just him, anybody will go. Because they've been conditioned to do that. They don't want to look in a certain light. But mm-hmm. you guys have somebody to fire back, and he doesn't have to say anything. 
You don't have to say anything if you got the right people. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I'm thinking, you know, because I wonder if he has the same bad advisors that were stuck on him that Trump had. You know, the people that hated him, that served under him. You know, not the, the, the top positions, but right below the top. So Trump made a great cabinet, but he didn't go for, he didn't go far enough. He kept the bureaucrats that hated him there, and I guess he thought that uh, he gives he gives he the cabinet. Them, yeah, yes, he Those can. Public Did you ever hear about schedule? Susan F? Rice and him working in the office. Those are public servants. How are you going to get rid of? Unless you put um, somebody over them. Well, let me see, let me see if I can find this here. Uh, something, well, let's, um, while I'm looking, let's, let's talk about the Memphis cops for a bit, because I made a post on Facebook uh, for friends only <laughs> for, for pretty obvious reasons that said that uh, white supremacy is so contagious, black people are catching it. I guess I'm interesting response <laughs> to that one. That's, but it's true. See, that was their, that was their what do you call it? What's the ace in the hole? They, got, they, they went to that when they had, had to. They know it's a possibility. They know it already existed, but they wanted to. They had some to uh, to counter the Trump T-R-U-M-P when you playing cards, uh, the incidents that happened. But that's so stupid. <laughs> I mean, I, I, white supremacy? They don't care. About white supremacy? I mean, you, you've been talking about that too, but you said it the was only racism. People can, only, people that can, the only people that can go against them about white supremacy have to be somebody black. Nobody right. white is going to going to uh, deny white supremacy because they will be accused of the next card. You got to have somebody black to stand up and say this stuff by white supremacy is a bunch of bull. No, I agree with you. I mean, this is why I, I've talked about this is why why Shirley's so good talking about uh, gun issues because she's a woman, especially a victim of domestic violence. In fact, it's interesting that almost everybody in DC Project are women who are a victim of domestic violence. I mean, I don't laugh. You know, again, I'm laughing ironically, not uh, not humor. It's, it's quite fascinating. But there are people that can speak. The people that are the strongest advocates for men's rights are women because men aren't listened to. You know, we live in a very strange society. And as a white guy, I'm probably the least listened to person, you know, on the planet right now. I don't care. I'm starting a radio show anyway. Um, but I don't speak from, you know, I don't speak as being a white male unless it comes up. But uh, it's, it's fascinating. What if I called myself a black supremacist and I started hating white people? Being a white person. Well, try it out. We're good. You, you think? What are, yeah. but, you know, here's, let me talk about the black police. <laughs> Go ahead. What? Let me tell you what you were looking at with the police officers. Okay. You had this driver, Nichols. Now, mm-hmm. normally when police pulled you over for some traffic infraction, the car was sit there behind you until he put the, your license tag in the computer. Right. Then it would come back one way or the other. Mm-hmm. It's about the car. Then he gets out. He walks to you, the driver. He asks you for three things and maybe a couple more, I think. One, your driver's license, your financial liability, insurance, mm-hmm. and your registration. Then he may ask another question, like, is there any guns or anything in the car? So then he go back. Okay. Now, if there has been a high-speed pursuit where you are immediately a felon for running from them, when mm-hmm. they stop you, they would come up to the door and snatch you out and detain you with handcuffs. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the procedure. They put you on the ground, I think. That's what they did to this. Yeah, put right. you on the ground, too. What is what they did to this guy? 
So mm-hmm. right then and there, it tells me something else is going on here. Now, if he has a, and this is a go back to home training. Okay. If he had a went on and complied and been handcuffed, even if they had to beat him once he was handcuffed, he still would have com- he would have complied. He would have been on film, on tape, on video, and he could have got a settlement and be alive today. But he mm-hmm. upped and ran. That will be something else too. Mm-hmm. Now let me tell you this: you hear these, these black activists, and I'm not talking about all blacks that say we need to have our own our own stores, our own schools, our own mayor, our own police officer patrolling our community because whites cannot do it. They're not familiar with the culture, and we need to have police chiefs. All right, they got all that in Memphis. Now, you know what the culture is in the black community when you do something wrong? Do you know what it is? What's no. the reaction? You get your ass whooped. Yeah. You ever heard blacks talking about, yeah, when we was kids and we walking down the street and if we was cursing or something, Miss Sally would come off the porch and she would whoop us and then send us home, we get another whoop. What else in the culture and community? That's what mm-hmm. those cops were doing. Okay, so, so, wait, so wait a minute. Let me just call this. Now, this, 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 this is interesting. Him. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yeah, okay. Hang on All for right. a second. Okay. Should he end up being dead? No, I don't think so. I don't think that. They even gave him the song. See, when we was getting, when we was a kid, we was getting whooping. We had to listen to a song. Didn't I tell you? I told you not to do, and so on, so on, so on, so on, so on. What? They was giving him the song, singing him the song initially why they was doing what they did to him. That's in the culture. Interesting. That's how you deal with people who used to that. Now, I'm not saying that he was, but in other instances, that's what happened. So I'm not as familiar with the story because I've been working on all our guests this week. So he he did end up, he was being, he did die from, uh, uh, from the, from the police. Correct. He got beat up in the end, yes. They say that the results of him, see, he, he up and ran from the initial stop. He up and ran, then they caught him again. Okay. After they set up so, a remedy and they, they done, kicked him and everything. They shouldn't have done that, no. Had they done drug tests? But he shouldn't have ran. Uh, he should have went, went on and let them handcuff him. Yeah. That's what they have to do. Yeah, and I've had police training. I was law enforcement briefly until they you know, made my life miserable. Um, but if, if like, like I say, if I ever get raided here, you know, for what I'm doing, I'll, although everything I do is open, there's no re- reason to raid, you know, completely open about action radio. But if it ever happens, I'm not going to resist. You know, I'm going to wait for my, my, my lawyer yeah, and my, my book deal and my everything else. I'm not stupid. <clears throat> you know, as what always more should teach their kids in those instances that they have right. to comply. You don't yep. have court on the streets. Yeah. And the cops aren't, are, that's not their job. You know, I call mostly. <laughs> hey, Jonathan, guess where I am now? <laughs> you know, I'll call him from some, some federal prison or something like that. So, uh, yeah. Um, when it but, comes to find out that he was messing with uh, one of the cops, probably the one that was initially, 
Mm-hmm. Either girlfriend. This is interesting. Well, let's let's talk about let's let's talk about American black culture because black culture is different, you know, obviously in different countries around the world. But American black culture. So if you have a black mayor, a black city council, a black police chief, a black police force, and a black citizenry, that's that's an interesting environment. So Memphis is almost there. I don't know what the white population is, but as far as I'm, I'm guessing. So, well, tell me, you can tell me, how much of Memphis is, is black? Memphis is, is majority, majority black. But these okay. these crimes and things going on in these black communities, and, and sad to say, now that blacks that could have left, now you have poor blacks, elderly blacks that has to bear the blunt of the criminality. And also, right. you have to bear the blunt of tax increases because of these insurance policies going to go up after they keep paying these settlements. And see, now the settlement thing is a game. You got attorneys that benefit from this. They have mm-hmm. learned how the game is played. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just. I, I was thinking more of like you were saying. You know, what would happen in a black environment, in a black culture, in a black you know police force? That uh, yeah. Uh, if, if you did the wrong thing, you know, you're going to take a beating for it. Uh, that's, that's interesting. And, and so how do we apply this overall? So in other words, because you hear all the time, well, you've got to see it from the black point of view. This is a cultural thing. Okay, well, let's take a look at that. <clears throat> let's see what that looks like. So is this what a black... And that's only you know, in certain areas. And they usually okay. the worst areas. That's not in every area. And I right. don't think that, and really, to the truth, I have only known maybe one or two Mm-hmm. Black governors that was successful. One mm-hmm. was in Atlanta with Maynard Jackson. Okay. He also had some success with uh, Marion Barry in uh, Washington D.C. And even Marion Barry was a was a crack addict. Well, hell, he's a damn good mayor. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, nobody, nobody's 100% good or bad. Well, maybe some people are 100% bad. So let's think about this for a second, because I'm thinking to myself, of all the, uh, the the folks that we have in this country, we've got you know, um, Native Americans or, you know, American Indians, whatever, whatever the term of the day is. We've got every nationality under the sun that's here. We've got every religion, but mostly Christian, Jewish, and I'd say probably Hindu and Muslim are, are you know, are below those. We've got uh, just an amazing, quote, diversity of people here. And yet the one split that everybody seems to be wrapping around and identifying with is between white and black Americans. And I find this, you know, I'm sorry, folks, the Civil War ended in the 1800s. Why is it that this, this artificial division, the black neighborhood versus the white neighborhood, the black police chief versus the white police chief, you know, white cops in a black neighborhood, this, this separation of white and black, is it because it's so dramatically in skin color opposed? Is it easy for people to see? Um, because we're all different shades. You know, white people and black people come in all different shades. <laughs> you know, in fact, Indians, uh, I'm talking about Indian Indians, are genetically white which is interesting, but have adapted uh, due to the climate and the sun and everything else. Uh, does, you know, does, so dark-skinned Indian who's genetically you know, from a white race originally, um, what does that say? You know, so is it perception or is well, it you know, it's, going it's, by genetics? Dravidians were black skin. Are you talking about Indian Indians? <laughs> yeah, Indians from India. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, well, they but came why from is this in my group well, let's talk about African countries. So what happens in African countries? I don't want to generalize. So you can pick a few examples. And maybe, I don't know, Ghana, Nigeria, Kenya, whatever, whatever you're familiar with, because uh, I'm not. So you're going to help me out here. So what happens in predominantly black countries? 
is there any similarity um, to the way that like a, a poor black neighborhood in America would be treated in a poor black neighborhood in Africa and in any countries? In What's, Africa, yeah. In Africa, if you do the crimes you see here, they kill you. So uh, no name, like Boko Haram, they lay them on the ground, face first, come up behind, shoot them in the head. So Boko Haram is where? Where's that? Nigeria, northern region. If so you're in markets like, and you got uh-huh. a shop, you got a shoplifter. The merchant and the people both will beat the hell out of them. So the crime rate is low. If you got a lot of activity, like you, like what we call drug activity in the house. They would burn it down. They don't put up with it. So, so the crime rate, I, mean, I take it, would be very low in these areas. So is Boko, we'll talk about Boko Haram in a minute, but just, just the, in general. So we're talking um, Boko Haram Nigeria. is a terrorist. Okay, so that's different. Yeah, Boko Haram is the, the, the Islamic terrorist. Yeah. Okay, so that's, that's, that's a different thing. Let me just talk about, let's, let's get, uh, pick, a, pick a neighborhood, pick a region. Of, of Nigeria, and tell me how it operates uh, in terms of, of law and rights and how the society and how the government's set up. I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to, if there's a way to compare a black African well, neighborhood there, to a black American there, neighborhood. I'm just curious. Their police carry, uh, they carry the weapons that you want to ban here in the United States. Right. If, you, if they police stop you, well, police and you too. start speaking... <laughs> If you start uh, giving them the same type of problems that we see in videos there, they would beat the heck out of you. Okay. They don't take that stuff. So crime rate is – is everybody rebelling against the police, or is it pretty law and orderly because the, you can get beaten up with because you don't have the same due process rights, it sounds like? What does that do for the crime rate? Well, they have, they have, they have, a, due, they have a court system a, based on the Commonwealth of uh, Britain, but uh, – it's okay. just how the police interact with. Now, they, there's not always bad, but if you present yourself or uh-huh. you causing those problems, we would deal with you. And they'll just throw you in the back of a truck and haul you off. Now, that's not all the time, but when you, those type of, when you get the level of situation elevates itself to that type of response, uh-huh. well, it's there. They shoot tear gas, rubber bullets, and real bullets. Yeah, I mean, escalation of force is pretty common, you know, worldwide. So I'm getting that. What I'm, I'm, I'm sort of grasping here because I'm trying to figure out a way to to uh, to talk about this. But I'm, I'm just curious if there's a connection, if if it's black that is the issue, or it's it's culture that takes black people and puts you know black folks in a place that that gets a predetermined result. So in other words, if if black Africans are behaving this way. They have a law and orderly society. Uh, the police might be, as you're saying, will beat you up if you give them any, any crap, basically. Uh, you don't have the same due process rights, which I think might be a problem. But in other words, so, the, so, the, so black isn't the issue. That's what I'm trying to establish. So if black is the control. Blacks in America know, are Americans. They're not Africans. Right. So black's that's not the not, issue then. That, so there's nothing that predisposes that, that genetic black. Right. So there's nothing that predisposes somebody who's black to be you know, a, a, a uh, you know, a criminal and violent and all these other kind of things. So this is so this is not the skin color, even though they're trying to say it. There's this, this artificial separation of black and white in this country that is so different that black and white people can never come together. This is what I'm trying to get at. So in Africa, it's not a big deal. I mean, so so there's no so in other words, cultural, religious, national, and everything else comes into play, which is what I expected. 
I'm, 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 I'm illustrating well, yeah, this you, to, to you see, all black society is, is not the uh-huh. same. Matter of fact, blacks are just as white as uh, whites are. I mean, the kids are brought up on the language, nursery rhyme, Humpty Dumpty, uh-huh. Eeny, Meeny, Mighty Moe, and all those things like that. That's uh-huh. what they learn. I mean, that's, that's you are who or you are what's been instilled in you that uh-huh. develops your culture. There's uh, there's subcultures within black society. Uh, blacks in the South is 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 almost like a night and day with those in the North. Mm-hmm. Uh, in many ways, but uh, that's just the way it is. You go to up in the n- northeast corner, and I'm sorry, northwest corner, up in Washington, where a few that's up there, they different. Up in the northeast con- corner in Connecticut, that they different. You come down to Washington, D.C., and of course, Chicago, you know they different. St. Louis, they different. So mm-hmm. that's just the way it is. But people yeah. try to bunch all these folks together based on skin color. Elon Musk is more African American than, than those that's born here. <laughs> yeah, because he's from South Africa. Well, I was getting to that too. So, so white people in South African, predominantly black countries. How's that work out? Well, they have. You got whites in uh, South Africa that suffer from poverty and and oppression, just mm-hmm. like you uh, people claim to be experienced here. I mean, poverty don't know no uh, skin color either. Yeah, yeah, and that's the that's my basic thesis is that this is artificial. This is an artificial split. That you know, to say black culture versus white culture in a country which has an American culture is almost a denial of the American culture in a country where we have so many different people, religions, skin colors, uh, nationalities, you know, and everything else. And yet the split, the number one split, the artificial split by the Marxists, by the powers that be, by the government is always black and white. Well, what about everybody else? Yes. So why is that in America? America. What is so useful? What is so useful? Because it works. Okay. It works. It's just like, uh, you know, you look at the, your, your, your Sharptons and, Jackson, they may have good intention when they first start out, but now I doubt that very seriously because look at the results. Uh, just like uh, when, the, boy, it was a surprise when the five officers were black. But guess what? They had something waiting for them. Like I said, they said, well, you have black police officers under the influence of white supremacy. But they you don't know, say anything about a governor in, a governor in uh, Oregon that says that that uh, either Oregon or California said that math is racist. <laughs> well, I'm gonna get those arguments in a bit, but let's 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 say let's say this was different. Let's say we had uh, instead of five black officers, we had uh, black officer, white officer, you know, uh, Hispanic officer, a woman, you know, from a, an Asian woman, and, and and a Jewish, you know, former rabbi. <laughs> okay, in other words, we had a diverse group of police officers. Would this have been a completely different outcome? No. Or could it have been exactly the same outcome? Because you weren't going to have it. They weren't going to allow it. You got all kinds of things. Right now, you got the mayor of uh, New Orleans, a black female, who is leveling charges on her of having a sexual relation. I'm not saying sexual relation, but we don't know what goes on in the hotel, but a relationship with a police officer. And her husband is trying to divorce her. So, I mean, I mean, uh, People do those things, but uh, 
is how it's reported and how it's talked about. You know, another big problem, like we talk about all the time, is the news media. Mm-hmm. News media choice of words that they use, uh, this choice of description, headline. The news media causes a lot of problems. And no matter if that news media is black or white, but the mm-hmm. ones that's in against uh, the ears and eyes of, of the largest share of the population are the ones that we know, the uh, CNN and MSNBC and, you know, Fox and others. But they have an agenda. But let me let me just get. Uh, um, I want to. I wrote down news here. I want to come back to that. But what's interesting is is the perceptions. So we were told that black officers in a black neighborhood or or county or city would be better because you know the black police officers would relate better to the black citizenry. We were told that. And now we see a situation where five black officers have, uh, I'm not sure how or why, but it's resulted five black officers, you know, beat the hell out of somebody and it resulted in their death. Now, we don't know if they were on fentanyl. We don't know if they had a predisposition. We didn't know if they were about to have a heart attack. We don't, there's a lot of things we don't know yet. But uh, if the police are the cause of that. Well, see, what they don't tell you about uh is how black officers and everybody else is shot as they sit in a patrol car during reports. A 17-year-old in St. Louis shooting at, at Police officers. See, yeah. you don't hear about that stuff. You only hear it the other way around. Mm-hmm. Well, this is why I'm trying to work it through. So, so the 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 the, uh, the assumption the the, the assumption that, that that these folks are trying to give is that black police officers are better in a black neighborhood. That you really you're not going to get justice from white that's police what officers. Say, yes. Okay. All right. And now this yes, this disproves that. Yes, so this this disproves that. So now they have to come up with something else to cover their story that fails. I'll say another story that fails. Um, women, if we get more women in politics. And they want to defund the police. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's it. I got a siren out here, too. I guess the governor's leaving. Um, but here's another thing, too. You know, we heard this when, when uh, most of Congress and I guess the state legislatures were mostly men. We heard that if we get more women in office, it'll be more nurturing. It'll be kinder and gentler. We'll have more laws for the people. Government will be more responsive to people. And I would point out Nancy Pelosi, you know, Ilhan Omar, you know, Ocasio-Cortez. You know, I could go through the list of, uh, of uh, what's her name, Pocahontas, you know. And there's a bunch of women in various agencies that are total idiots um, and, and power-hungry like Michelle Obama. So the idea that women, because they're women, would bring in a kinder, gentler, nicer political situation. It's a bunch of nonsense because it's proven in this, this uh, affair. What it really proves is that women are just as susceptible to the corruption of power as men, which all of us knew before women, women got more into politics. And I knew this was going to happen because it's power. And power affects people. I don't, the people that go into politics are predisposed to be corrupted by power. I don't care if they're men or women, black or white or whatever. It doesn't matter. People that are predisposed to want to exercise women, more authority are going to be Say it again. I'm sorry. Women got vagina power. Ooh. Okay. Let's get really controversial. Explain that one. If you want. Well, they, you don't have they to. won't have a man. Yeah, okay. So women, so women can sexually so. manipulate men, but aren't those same men predisposed to be manipulated? Yeah, and some wrong with them. Okay, so there's a case, I was just reading about this in uh, Gateway Pundit, and it was talking about somebody that was being groped by, you know, his superior, and it was a woman. And Human Resources said, well, that can't happen, women can't uh, uh, oppress men. <laughs> She's my boss, <laughs> you know, she can fire me. Of course they can't. 
And so remember the Michael Douglas movie uh, with uh, Demi Moore, which is exactly that, that entire scenario. You had a married yeah. guy, you know, who's uh, being seduced by Demi Moore, you know, and the question is what made him susceptible to that? Well, the marriage, whatever, who knows? I've forgotten the exact story, but the thing was she was his superior. So it's, it's power. So women in positions of power, to think that they're not going to be just as corrupt as men in power, if they're women that are predisposed to want power, are going to do exactly what guys do. Black officers who are predisposed to power are going to use it like white officers who are predisposed to power. Those are the kind of people you do not want in the police force. You want people in the police force that believe in the oath of the, you know, to protect and serve, you know, not to control. Yes. <laughs> so, you, know, uh-huh. you have some great black police officers, but then you – and see, here's the thing. It depends on the situation. In that uh-huh. area, you had three jump-out squads, like that one they call Scorpion. Scorpion squad, they call them. What, what's a scorpion squad? What the hell is that? It's a special detail to address certain areas and the crime that's going on in those areas, like carjacking, for instance, like armed okay. robbery. Uh-huh. And you had a predominance of the – of that going on in that area of the city. Uh, you got these idiots that are commandeer uh, intersection, a four-way intersection, and they take their cars and drive around in circles, burning rubber and stuff. <laughs> Donuts, yeah, exactly. That's funny. Um, well, and let, let's look at what we talked about. Uh, and who's the person that died? What, what, what's the name again? I'm not good with names. His last name was Nichols. Mr. Nichols. Nichols. Okay. So Mr. Nichols, now do we have his uh, crime stats? Of previous crimes he might he have committed. He, he, he doesn't have any criminal background. Okay, so he's no. All right, so that's interesting. So he's no criminal background. So why did he run? Why did he resist? What has he ever been stopped by the police before? Is this his first encounter with the police? If you was if you was messing with somebody's wife, Greg, and they stopped you in their professional uniform, that being a police officer. Uh-huh. Aren't you scared? What do people do when they're afraid? Yeah, they run. They resist. They fight back. Yeah. Fight or flight. Okay, so this is the part of the story right. I'm not as clear on. So so this so Mr. Nichols was was he having an affair with one of the cops' wives? Is that That's proven? what it said. I don't think it was his wife. I think uh, it was probably his uh baby's mama. Is okay. one of the cops' baby's mom. Oh, still, uh, still somebody he's, he's close, close to. Girlfriend. Okay, so wife, girlfriend, mm-hmm. partner, he's still close to the, this person. All right, so now it becomes personal. So here's the problem. What a good cop was do is say, this is the person who's, you know, having an affair with, sleeping with, messing with, you know, causing grief to my whatever, wife, partner, girlfriend, something like that. He said, I'm leaving the situation. You guys deal with it. There's four of you. <laughs> There's one That's of you. right. You're absolutely right. And then that would have been, you got yeah. a city with overzealous that want to charge one white cop in the initial stop who tased him. Well, what he's supposed to do is tase him. That's, that's non-lethal force. That's the force contender. Mm-hmm. Then they want to charge the EMT uh, fire department, uh, EMT uh, personnel. They want to charge them with murder, too. Well, hell, they got nothing to do with it. They come there to... Uh, Give medical attention. They can't give it while you're beating the hell out of people. Did he resist at all? Did he throw punches, kick? You know, did he do anything to resist? Did all that, yes. He had to do that to get away. So he actually broke away from the police. 
so he was on the ground and he broke away mm-hmm. and got up, started running. Okay. <laughs> so now here's the thing too. Uh, if you know who the person is, you know, if they've got your ID, what is the, and like you said, so the first thing that happens in a police stop. You got the ID, police, you got your car, you know, this stuff. So then why do you have you, to change They them? wasn't thinking clearly. Oh, uh, okay. So here's the thing, too. Let's talk about police chases, because I know in San Francisco, I think they either, or, or Los Angeles, one of the places, they outlawed high-speed chases. And I think that makes sense, especially in a, city, in a city environment. How about and on, on the foot? highway? What's that? I was on foot. Okay. But, How about um, on foot? But here, well, here's the thing, too. Well, let's, let's talk about police chases. So I'm thinking to myself, in this modern day of, uh, of technology, in the old days, you wanted to stop someone before they crossed the county line because you want to make them, you want to arrest them and you know, keep them from doing bad stuff and escaping scot-free. I'm not sure who Scott is, but it's kind of an interesting thing. So that, but in the modern time, you know, we've got tracking, GPS. We've got, you know, once your license is in the system, they know who you are. They've got your life history. Someone breaks away and runs. It's like, okay, we'll see you in an hour. We'll, we'll find out where you are. You know, and you arrest them at a place that is a, you know, non-combative, non-threatening environment. And that might be their home. Well, of course, that could be a problem, too. And that goes but saying, on. It works, But do you, do you have to chase somebody when you know who they are in this modern age with modern technology, with police surveillance and uh, GPS and helicopter stuff and thermal imaging and everything else you can think of? How much do we have to engage? How much do the police have to engage in high-speed chases where they have to catch that person right now? I don't think they do as much anymore. Well, they don't. You know, in, like in Los Angeles, they use helicopters. But let's mm-hmm. get back to on foot. Okay. You have to chase them on foot because suppose you don't know what they've done and why they're fleeing. So if they run and turn mm-hmm. a corner, then when you get there and turn the corner, they've got a gun up against a hostage head. Now what? Mm-hmm. Did they do that because they were being chased, or would they have just kept running? You know, if they were, if they were not. I mean, it, it, you can't, you can't call the future. Well, yeah, yeah you know, something like the that. Person running, how, how much left they got in? But here's another point: in Chicago, that mayor Lori Lotson outlawed foot chases. Can you follow somebody on foot, or is it you cannot chase them to to catch them? What's 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 the exact uh, protocol there? What's the wording? Or do you know? I don't know what the I don't know, but I know they outlaw foot chase. I asked the question, well, what about the police dog? They can't run out them either? Yeah, I like the police dog idea. Well, wouldn't these teams, that's a really good point. Wouldn't these teams actually have a police dog? If they, you know, wouldn't that be a huge asset to their team? So that if somebody is running away, rather than have, you know, Officer Donut, you know, trying to run down the street after them with all their belts and utility stuff and things like that, send the dog. To restrain them. Yeah, that's usually a canine detail. That's what they're for. Uh, patrol in the area. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I've, we, I've seen canine patrol. When I was in California, there were canine patrols all the time. You know, there's like, like, I'd say maybe a quarter of the police cars had a canine, had a dog in the back. And you didn't mess with the dog. These, these were well-trained, amazing animals. But, yeah. you know, dogs in uh, used to patrol black communities are no-no, too. You know why? Yeah, I think it goes back to segregation, doesn't it, that uh, uh, dogs were used against uh, black civil rights people. Well, tell me the story. Tell me some of the reasons. There you go. There you go, yes. Okay. But that was then. This is now. Why would you you deny a a police, a canine, a very useful, uh, incredibly efficient, fast, you know, animal that can resolve situations incredibly quickly, I mean, we use the uh, dog against, you know, remember Conan against al-Baghdadi? Chase him down a cave 
before he blew himself up, the coward died like a dog. Yeah. You know, uh, we, used to, we used a dog. Uh, we, our dog was a hero. Conan made it to the White House under Trump. Okay. So why would that? What, we say can't do it because, you know, the, the person we're chasing is Arab. <laughs> that makes no sense. So why? So I don't know, why, Greg. You know, I, uh, that, I can tell you what. I'm trying to well think of a parallel. Yeah. That'd be like, oh. yeah, I'm trying to think of a parallel. There isn't one. But the fact that dogs were used. Well, I mean, they used handcuffs during the civil rights movement, too. They used guns. They imprisoned people. You know, should we give up prisons? And <laughs> the same logic would say, well, we can't use handcuffs on, on black people because they were used against, uh, you know, blacks during the civil rights movement. But they don't. <laughs> well, you know, no. there's different forms of protest. Yeah. There's a there's petition. Mm-hmm. You know, that you go through the process of rallies and and letters, and but the ultimate form of protest is a riot. Is it though? What is? Let's think about a riot. See, a riot to me Civil seems to be a political operation. It seems to be an organized, a spontaneous. Well, I don't know how many riots are spontaneous. But let's take a look at Antifa and Black Lives Matter. Uh, during the Trump campaign, they're always outside Trump rallies. Uh, during when I was in, in Oakland, California, you know, the, uh, the Black Lives Matter would literally block the highways and the police would let them. You know, there's some places where motorists have actually, you know, driven through people doing that and they've actually run over people. Um, but if you're blocking the road, that is not, is not a legitimate form of protest. You can protest all you want, but you cannot keep people from living their lives during the protest. So if people have places to go, things well, they to try do, to especially do emergencies. Yeah, I know they try to do it, but that's not they a legitimate. They, they did legitimate. do it in this case, too. Yeah, but that's not a legitimate protest. That's a, that's a denial. Yeah, well, that's an oppression of other people's rights. If you block a freeway with a whole bunch of people, that's a denial. That's a civil rights violation of all those people on the freeway. You're denying their right to I go agree, where they want, to live their lives. Look what happened know, in Canada. So, go ahead, tell me. Look what happened in Canada with the truckers. Mm-hmm. We had a reporter from Canada on the so, show. Yes. Actually, she lives in Ottawa. I don't know if you remember when uh, Jennifer mm-hmm. was on. <clears throat> Incredible. And she was working with the... Um, you know, reporting on the, the Freedom Trackers in Canada. Um, Jen Clark, who was in uh, Australia that we had on the show a few times, whom I wrote the Australian Bill of Individual Rights with. You know, it's part of their Freedom Convoy from Melbourne to Canberra. So this is international. So, you know, I'm trying to, I've got folks, uh, actually the gentleman I'm in touch with in England, hoping he'll get, give us a British report at some point. So these things are universal. I mean, Trudeau just came out with even more oppression. I forgot what the latest thing was. It's on our international news group. And so I'm hoping that Pierre Polivier, uh, who's running against him, wins. I think he's French-Canadian, um, but he speaks English without an accent, without a French accent, which is kind of interesting. But he'd be a great, you know, replacement for, for Trudeau. But Trudeau's got the world government behind him. But in this case, in Memphis, mm-hmm. it seemed like the big concern was they didn't want people rotting, burning, and tearing up stores and things. See, but you can't, well, that's, like the, that's like this. With the, the, that's like the Supreme Court not over not uh, correcting not say overturn. I almost misspoke. That's like the Supreme Court not correcting the 2020 election because they're worried that uh, to a protest and riots. That's not a, that's not a standard of justice. You cannot be intimidated. You cannot have a standard of justice where the outcome is determined by what people might do in a riot. That's cowardly. That's I agree. Disgusting. That is no. And I don't care. And if people riot, that's on them. It's not the Supreme Court did not cause would not have caused a riot any more than Scott Scherer when he and I was really upset when he said this that uh, he and his wife uh, signed their daughter's death warrant because they said uh, they objected to um, 
a certain treatment or, or they objected to a ventilator. I said, no, you, I didn't want to say it right immediately. I got him, told him a bit later. I said, look, you did not do that. You did not want to put her on a ventilator. They did. They're the ones that poisoned her. They're the ones that gave her the drug overdose. You know, so you didn't do that. That's like if someone says, well, you know, the government caused a riot because they didn't grant, you know, this special benefit to these people. No. People are well, responsible for what they do. This year, mm-hmm. In the last week or so, he had the governor call out the National Guard in order to, I don't know what the incident was, to prevent rioting and looting. That's a good thing. So you have to meet that kind of disobedience with the, mm-hmm. uh, that type of criminality. You have to meet it with the proper force. In Chicago, the mayor, uh, Lori Lightfoot, I think, in one instance of riding downtown Chicago, she pulled back the police. Yeah, she's got a different agenda. <laughs> she, she, wants, she wants anarchy. She wants to be a, an anarchist Marxist you know, dictator. So I don't know what that philosophy is. I don't think that has anything to do with color. I think that's just she's predisposed to anarchy and tyranny. And a lot of people are in, in politics. That's how they operate. But this is this so you is, have uh, so much yeah. going on. Oh, yeah, we're busy. The likely solution well, is people <laughs> draw a line and say, "Look, I'm not doing it. You stay over there. I stay over here. That's it. Yeah. Be individual." Yeah, I've got. Uh, let's take a little break now and recoup, re, re, recoup, regroup. <laughs> you know, take a breather. We've actually been on steadily since seven o'clock, so we're, we're two hours and fifteen minutes without a break. It's kind of interesting. But this has been a very intense day. Uh, and I really appreciate Scott being on. And I really appreciate the discussion we're having right now um, because I don't know where else people can listen to this kind of openness. Um, you know, and this is, this is kind of cool. This is why this is part of what we do here. So let's take a break. I want to talk about schedule F, which is something that you, uh, we brought up earlier. Trump can't fire all these people. The left is terrified of this. This is one of those issues that they won't tell you about because they know that most people in the country would approve it. So they have to find some other way to demonize Trump. It's the Hegelian dialectic. It's exactly what Scott was talking about earlier. I'm going to start looking that up. I'll get, I'll, I, was asking, I wanted to ask him about it, but uh, we, we had so many other important things to talk about. But we'll talk about the Marxian dialectic, the Hegelian dialectic. The, but a good example would be you can't elect Trump because he's a racist, sexist. He's going to start World War III. You can't elect him, you know, as Biden is doing everything possible to get us into World War III, right? So there's a, there's a Hegelian dialectic. The other dialectic is when they say all these things about Trump that isn't true, because they don't want you to know what is true about Trump, that he wants to put most of the federal government um, out of civil service and put them on, uh, on Schedule F, which means they could be fired, which would be the single. If he did that, that act alone would make him like you know, political sainthood. Just that. And there's so much more to do. So I'm going to report on that in a little bit. Let's take a little break here, and we'll come back. And, and the time is now 9.17. So this will, be an, this will be an exciting one. You might want to mute yourself for a few minutes um, so I can get all, all my stuff in at once. And then we'll come back for the, the remainder of the show and, and hash out a few more things. But this is great. I really appreciate your help today, Pianchi. Let me just scroll up a little bit here, get my first one, and away we go. This is Greg Penglis for Strike Force, your source for pure energy. Strike Force is a concentrated energy drink that turns a half liter of your favorite beverage into an energy drink. You make your energy drink yourself. Action Radio is an affiliate of Strike Force, so our listeners get a 20% discount. All you do is add our code WYL to the discount code window at checkout. WYL comes from our website, Write Your Laws. So, you can get your energy drink, a 20% discount, 
and help Action Radio change the relationship of we the people to our government. Not bad. Strikeforce is at StrikeforceEnergy.com. That's StrikeforceEnergy.com. Start your engine. Hello, this is Greg Penglis for our newest shooting range here in Milton, Florida. Stand your ground. My friend Jason Myers and crew are creating an incredible facility for our city. Stand Your Ground is located at 6632 Elva Street. The phone number is 850-789-1776. Their email is standyourground1776 at gmail.com. Here you'll find either in process or already going an indoor shooting range, axe throwing, archery, a rage room, self-defense classes, concealed carry weapons classes, security license training, paintball, a full-service gun store, and 24-7 online ordering. So come on down or contact them by phone, email, or website and learn how you can best stand your ground. From addiction to achievement, that is the story of Mike Lindell. It started with my pillow and now goes to my coffee. Action Radio is proud to be an affiliate of My Pillow. Our discount code is the same for all our product affiliates, WYL, which stands for Write Your Laws. My Pillow Pillows are guaranteed the most comfortable pillow you'll ever own. Action Radio is guaranteed to be the most controversial show you will ever hear. Check out their products with our discount code at MyPillow.com slash W-Y-L. That's MyPillow.com slash W-Y-L. Or order now by calling 1-800-544-8939. That's 1-800-544-8939. Sleep well so you can wake up and hear Action Radio live. Do you know your way around healthcare, insurance, pharmacies, surgery, alternative treatments and choices? I don't. Which is why I'm so glad I met Priscilla Romans, had her on Action Radio, and learned about health patient advocacy. She is the founder of Great Care. And now as an affiliate of Great Care, we are proud to offer through our discount code, WYL, which stands for Write Your Laws, a 10% discount. Grave Care saves you both time and money. They provide medical advocacy, consultation, advice, and recommendations nationwide. Their website is gravecare.com. That's G-R-A-I-T-H care.com. You can email them at gravecare.adm at gmail.com or call them at 469-864-7149. That's 469-864-7149. Great care, better health through better knowledge and advocacy. Action Radio, part of the ADHD Radio Network, the ultimate free speech zone. We the people give our consent to be governed through writing the laws by which we are governed and have the power through juries to nullify the laws by which we do not consent to be governed. 
at Action Radio. We don't report the news. We are the news. Every other show reports what has happened. We talk about what can happen. From the questions no one has thought to ask, to the answers no one has thought to consider, to the actions no one has dared to take, that is Action Radio. Yeah, just checking my email real quickly, and uh, Scott's already sent me a bunch of stuff, so it's interesting. I'll uh, get him connected with everybody I know and see if he, you know, he's got 400 shows. Wow. <laughs> that's a lot of shows. You know, that's a, that's a, that's a couple of years' worth uh, of shows, but uh, his daughter passed away in October of, I think, 2021. And so, yeah, it, unbelievable. You know, if you haven't, uh, uh, if you're just joining us now or, or in the last little bit here, please, you know, get the podcast and listen to Scott Shara uh, talk about grace and uh, the medical industry and the government medical holocaust and, you know, everything from World War II to all the things we talked about. That was an incredible time. And so we're going to be in touch regularly. And I want to see where he wants to go with this, what kind of bills, what kind of things he wants to, uh, uh, to present. Um, it's, it's just, you know, all of us activists, we're just becoming one big happy family of resistance. And it's good. You know, it's just too bad on the circumstances, but it's good that we're coming together. It's like people in adversity generally come together. And I saw that from a couple of times. One, the, uh, the earthquake uh, of San Francisco, 89, uh, the blizzard of 78 in New England, and Hurricane Sally here. So uh, those are my three natural disasters so far. <laughs> Knock on wood. So, you know, but uh, yeah, so I, I see. But the earthquake was the one that really impressed me is how fast people came together because it affected everybody. You know, uh, hurricanes, you know, you're, you're a few miles away from shore. It's different. But if you're anyway, anybody in the San Francisco Bay Area, we all went through an earthquake that uh, if you weren't hanging on to something, it was going to knock you over. I mean, it was, it was that strong. Uh, you could not stand up on your own. Um, and so uh, a lot of people got literally shaken off their feet. And, uh, of course, a lot of people died, too. Pianchi, you ever been through a natural disaster? Like a flood or something? Well, not in a hurricane. Okay. Well, I've got three so far. I figure I should live next to a volcano. <laughs> just got to round out my experience. That's next. And the people, yeah, I, I told my friends, yeah, yeah go, go ahead. Yeah, go, go somewhere far away. You know, what, Vesuvius maybe, you know, Krakatoa. Uh, what's uh, Mount St. Yeah, Helens? You'd be like the guy in Mount St. Helens. He's, he's there buried under something. Oh, a whole lot of something. <laughs> Yeah, I, there was, so just to let people know, Mount St. Helens was in Washington State, and it blew, and it blew out kind of sideways. But there was one guy, one guy who's, I'm not leaving. This is my home. I'm staying here, and he's still there. <laughs> he's just under, you know, mountains of rock and and the lava and whatever else. It's just, yeah, but he's still there. He stayed home. You know, you make your choices. All right, I want to change the subject a little bit here. This is from Axios. This is a liberal publication, and so they are writing against Donald Trump. Uh, but sometimes some of the greatest insights, but th- what they describe as evil is actually really good. And so you want to talk about a, a Hegelian dialectic. I'm using an article against Trump to show how good Trump is. <laughs> so, so there's your Hegelian dialectic in action. So the, this is from uh, July 23rd, 2022. So not that long ago, from last year, you know, almost a year ago now. It says how Trump could reimpose Schedule F in 2025. And they're terrified of this. And they have this nasty picture of Trump looking off to the side, you know, in his uh, blue jacket, white shirt and red tie. Red, white, and blue, folks, in case you miss the symbolism. It's a source as close to former President Trump's. They always say former, right? Because, you know, he's not current president. Yeah, he is. 
Sources close to current President Trump, who's being kicked out by the occupying forces, uh, say he would immediately reimpose his Schedule F. Uh, executive order if he takes back the White House, take, not elected, takes back the White House, right? In the 2024 presidential elections, uh, this is Axios' Jonathan Swan reports. I'm not sure who Jonathan Swan is, but uh, I guess that's the author since they just didn't give the author at the top of the page. So Jonathan Swan says why it matters. It would effectively upend the modern civil service and put future presidents in the position of bringing in their own loyalists or reversing to a traditional bureaucracy, Swan reports. So what's the problem? <laughs> then he says the backstory on Schedule F. Trump signed an executive order in October 2020, which established a new Schedule F. Unfortunately, that was right before the election. He should have signed it in 20, October of, of 2017, you know, at least to have it gone into place. He waited way too long. And I think that's probably a result of, of multiple impeachments, bogus investigations, uh, and just the general hatred uh, by his own party and the media. We know the Democrats hate him. Anyway, it says Trump signed an executive order in October 2020, which established a new Schedule F employment category for federal employees. Schedule F. Keep that in mind. You don't hear about it because it's good. All right. It said it was rescinded by, uh, I will say, insurrectionist Brandon shortly after he took office in 2021. So that was one of the first things. You never heard about this, right? But one of the first things that Brandon did was, you know, from his illegal powers was got rid of Schedule F. So the civil service, the, the, uh, the blanket protection, the immunity, the lifetime employment security, the, the basically illegal that nobody else has, you know, uh, job status of federal employees, federal civil service employees would have been gotten rid of by Donald Trump by executive order. Well, you can't have that. So we need Trump back. If, for nothing, if he does nothing else but brings back Schedule F, he'll have accomplished a huge thing in his, his second, second term. Hey, Pianki, what are you like, what are we calling that? We should call it Trump's second, second term? <laughs> I like that term. I can start using that one. All right. <laughs> He's laughing. All right. Article says, but back in March 2022, Trump floated the possibility of going after the federal workforce. No, he wasn't going after. He's was actually treating it like the rest of the workforce. You know, in other words, you can be fired. And the last bullet point, we'll pass critical reforms, making every executive branch employee fireable. I guess that's a word now. Or I would say could be fired uh, by the president of the United States. He said at a rally in South Carolina, the deep state must and will be brought to heel. Okay. This all sounds good to me. Then it says, who would, uh, if you have a question, just break right in. Uh, he says, who would be assigned, reassigned as schedule F? This is where it gets good. Tens of thousands of civil servants who serve in roles deemed to have some influence over policy would be reassigned as schedule F. So in other words, the people that would be protected would be your, you know, your secretaries, your basic managers, you know, your, your lower level folks, the new folks, the interns, the, uh, everybody else who's there, who's not officially granted civil service protection. But the policymakers, the, the, the dangerous folks, the bureaucrats that, that pretty much run the country, they don't care who's president. They just do whatever they damn well please because they've got this protection. Those are the ones who would be classified Schedule F, and those are the ones who should be gotten rid of. It says those, those levels of influence included confidential policy determining, policy making, or policy advocating. Well, those are the people you want to get rid of. They're not supposed to do that. <laughs> it's supposed to be the president's policy. The president runs the executive. Then it says what it means to be given a Schedule F assignment. They would lose their employment protections upon reassignment, making them functionally at-will employees and thereafter far easier to fire. Well, that's a good thing. <laughs> that's what the rest of us live under. You know, all of us go to work every day producing for our, our, our corporations, you know, do, unless you're like me, an entrepreneur. Uh, that's why I became an entrepreneur. But people go to work, 
you know, being more productive than their salary. That's how they get a salary. But they make more money for the company than, they, uh, than they're paid. That's, the, that's what an employee does. Uh, and, and everybody, most people, unless they're under union contracts, are at will, which means they can quit or be fired either by their own volition uh, for quitting or be fired by the company for not producing or going against company policies. Or something. Well, that's what most of us live under. So, so Pianchi, what's the problem here? Well, you should be able to fire those people, but they've got this law, and uh-huh. civil service law, I guess it is, that they can't be fired uh, just like that, and that's just totally wrong. That's one of the yep. reasons why Trump was so ineffective in the areas where he was because they have these insertions of these uh, roadblocks and these long-standing rules that have been there for so long you can take these employees and use them as weapons, as we see they were done. Uh-huh. Eric Chiramella, the whistleblower, who basically sabotaged probably a lot of foreign policy. Susan Rice and, and, is still and, there, I think. Yeah, okay. Well, she, no, she wasn't there under Trump, was she? I mean, you could be. I, mean, I think she was. I'm not sure. Yeah, she should have been fired immediately. I mean, she, I knew she was lying. When she got up there in all those television shows, you know, back when Benghazi happened, and she says, this is the result of a protest video. You know, this video inspired this riot. I'm like, this woman's lying. First of all, I knew she was lying because she blinked too much. You know, you can, if you, if you, if everybody should look up the, the, the physical response to lying. Most people are not completely, unless they're total sociopaths like Dr. Fascist, most people cannot lie without giving away that they're lying. They look down and to the left. You know, they, they blink a lot. They just they can't look you in the eye. They're just certain tells that most people have when they're lying. Susan Rice falls under that category. She's good at lying, but she's not perfect at it. And when you know the tells, it's pretty easy to tell when she's lying. And I knew the second she said, this was caused by a video. So then I looked up the video, all right? Because in those days, you could look at how many views the video had. You could also look up, and I forgot how we could do this. They took it away. But you could look up how many views the video had the, month, the previous month and the month before that. So I immediately looked up how many views this, this – uh, video had and millions right but then i looked up how many how many views it had before Benghazi, and it's like 150 <laughs> okay so i don't think 150 people is going to be enough to raise a video to alert an arab country you know especially libya um which is a little distant from the united states in more ways than one uh to suddenly attack our embassy in benghazi you know because of a video no they attacked the embassy in benghazi because they were running running guns out of there um to fight uh to isis to overthrow assad that's why they attacked it. <laughs> you know, I don't know if ISIS attacked it or who attacked it. Or maybe, I'm not sure who the parties were, but I know they were running guns out of Benghazi. And that was part of the cover-up. Part of the cover-up was blaming a video. We, you know, and remember, hey, Piaki, remember the show when I had the stand-down orders? I played that video, that, uh, that uh, recording of my uh, WEBY episode. We had the guy in the Mediterranean on a ship, and we had somebody else that was there that confirmed the stand-down orders. Remember that? I can play that again. Well, vaguely, you might have to play it again. Well, I'll do it sometime. I want, I, want to, I want to keep going to schedule after the show. I might probably get it. It was, it was a fabulous. Let me see how long it is, first of all. Check that out. See how long that, that particular thing was. But it was fascinating. Uh, Benghazi, Benghazi. It might be too long. Oh, it was only 16 minutes. Well, we could play it. Yeah, I could do that. Do you want to hear right now? Then we'll come back to schedule left. Yes, no? What's your opinion? Yes, yeah, stay on schedule. Okay, I'll stay on schedule. We'll play another time. Maybe I'll do it tomorrow. 
we got time. So Schedule F. So the other thing is, and here's the thing, it says, how many people Schedule F would affect? It could apply to as many as 50,000 total workers out of a workforce of more than 2 million. Well, that's interesting. First of all, why do we have a workforce of 2 million? Why don't we have a workforce of 50,000? And secondly, why aren't all of them under this already? That's my question. So why would you only do 50,000 out of 2 million? That's like what? Uh, 100,000 would be 25%. So 50,000 would be half of that. No, wait a minute. 2 million? Yeah. No, more than that. It'd be like 2.5%. So this, this is less than 2% of the workforce. <laughs> it would come under Schedule F, and yet they're kicking up a fuss. Let me well, it would be a lot. It would be a lot. Let me, let me bring in my calculator here just for the, just for the fun of it. My com- oh, there's the calculator. Okay, I got my new phone here. Clear my last result, which I never cleared. So let's go two million. Just put some zeros up here. There's two million. Oh, actually, I should do fifty thousand. So fifty thousand divided by two million equals point oh two five percent. Point oh two five. So that would be two point five percent. Yeah, I was right. Two point five percent of the workforce would be affected by Schedule F, which is nothing. It should be. 90% of the workforce. I don't, in fact, it should be 100% of the workforce. Why would you not have people, um, unless you have cabinet people, well, I don't know. Because you don't want people thinking they can be fired so quickly for, for doing nothing. Because you want people that are free to tell the president the bad news. So you might want to have uh, cabinet positions be a little harder to get rid of. Especially if they're confirmed by the Senate. I would not put those people under Schedule F. Because I want people to be able to tell the president, you're an idiot. <laughs> That's a stupid idea. Generally, you're good. But in this case, you're an idiot. Don't do that. Well, you never tell your boss that you're an idiot. Well, how do you do it? That's probably my problem. I think I said that on more than one occasion. You, well, if you if that bad, you quit. I think, I think that's what happened. <laughs> all right. So, but first of all, 2 million federal employees? What are they doing? That's like a country. Yeah, <laughs> They're a country but, smaller uh, than that. It's not all of them. But it was some that caused the problems associated with Donald Trump. And they was under the direction of whoever it was that was over them, their supervision. Right. So the deep state, the intelligence agencies, the members of Congress, the the Trump haters, and all the folks that were trying to sabotage the the first Trump administration before we get the second second Trump administration, uh, those are the people that uh, should have been on Schedule F. Those are the people that should have been fired. If you willfully dis- disobey the president and you've got an executive order that you're required to, to, uh, to carry out and you can't do that, that's when you resign. Uh, remember when uh, Cyrus Vance, let's bring up a name from the past, Cyrus Vance resigned as Secretary of State because Jimmy Carter ordered him to do something that he couldn't in good conscience do. So he did the honorable thing and, re- and resigned. Well, I admire them for that. You know, that's what See, you're the leader to do. doesn't usually do micromanagement. They go to the supervisor. Uh-huh. Yeah. Anyway, it says here, the next part is, how is, different, how is this different from regular presidential appointees? New presidents typically get to replace more than 4,000 so-called political appointees to oversee the running of their administration. Those are usually the top jobs, right? It says, but below this rotating layer of political appointees is a, sits a mass of government workers who enjoy strong empo- employment protections and typically continue their service from one administration to the next, regardless of the president's party affiliation. 
So the permanent bureaucracy. So those are the folks that should be under Schedule F, and probably not 50,000, but probably 500,000 out of two out of the two million, maybe even a million out of the two million should be under Schedule F. So not so if you take out the if you if you don't do it to the top 4,000 who are appointed by the president, well if they're appointed by the president, they can be removed by the president. So those people are already, you know, under uh, under a. Uh, um, they don't have the same protection. And that would include cabinet people who, again, you know, like it sort of counter, contradicts what I said earlier, that you don't want them to, so easily fired for telling the president he's an idiot. But, you know, that's, that's the, they have to work that out individually. So that's interesting. Let me get you another article here. We've got a little bit of time left. So my second article on Schedule F is from, I think this is a foreign one. Oh, guys, don't, don't, no, I don't want to do this. Take out the ad. I hate this pop-up stuff. Sometimes you, you, when you pull up an article you've had for a while, it goes, some, it goes somewhere weird. <laughs> oh, that was good. Can I get back to my site, please? Ah, here we go. Okay, we're back. So the website is Government Executive. So I think this is a government website. It's govexec.com. Oh, no, so slash workforce, slash 2022. Then it says workforce. Trump is threatening to the return and expansion of schedule with well, expansion of schedule F. This is getting better. This is March 14th, 2022. So yeah, a year ago, the former president who's going for his second, second term, who was reportedly mulling whether to launch a bid to return to the white house. Okay. So this is before he announced told supporters Saturday that the president should be able to fire any executive branch employee at will. I agree. This is by Eric Wagner and March 14th, 2022 in government executive who says, Former President Trump over the weekend effectively advocated for the demolition of the nonpartisan federal civil service system, providing the latest indication that while President Biden, which we can't say with honesty, (laughs) Biden halted the abortive effort to cancel the civil service protections of policy related federal workers, the fight over merit systems principles is not over. So what he's arguing for is blanket immunity and untouchability of, quote, civil service employees over a system of merit, which everybody else operates under. So this is how crazy these people are. They advocate for something that never should be over people that should never have that kind of power, that should, should not be immune to being fired, that should be on a merit system. They're arguing against the merit system, against the best and the brightest, doing the best and brightest things. They're arguing against that, saying we should keep things as they are. That, to me, is irrational. That's insane. Nobody could logically argue that uh, unless they were just pro-government and against the people. Piaki, what do you think? Well, yeah, that makes good sense. You just got to get into a position where it can become reality. But uh, that was one of Trump's uh, major concerns is that the people mm-hmm. uh, that was left there that he had to contend with. You know, Trump could have done his job and would have done a good job on those areas where he was strong in, but there were some areas that he wasn't strong. Maybe he did not anticipate that the quote-unquote swamp was as broad as it was. We knew it was deep, but how broad was it? And he found out. Yeah, Trump's really good when he followed his own instincts for the most part, um, but he was really bad when he listened to other people of, you know, what you can't do. And usually what he couldn't do was things he could do and would have been better for the country. Uh, but it's interesting that he announced this in 2022. Before he announced that he was running for president, he announced that if he runs for president, he wants to bring back Schedule F. I find that interesting. So why strategically would he do that? Because his supporters don't know about it. 
His enemies do. <laughs> so why would he announce that before announcing for president? I don't know. I couldn't tell you. Trump I don't either. Expertise was business. Trump's expertise was business, but business people can make great mirrors when it comes down to providing the economic platform, economic power mm-hmm. that uh, the municipalities need. But when you start getting this, and we talk about the country here, but when you start getting into some of that uh, evil political mess, like we made mention with this vaccine bill, that were the Republicans that uh, gave the pharmaceuticals these immunities and, mm-hmm. and that uh, and indemnification that we see them having today. It wasn't, and Democrats was against it. So you got uh, evil on both sides, and it's difficult yeah. to deal with that, but you got a lot of support. Well, it's interesting. One of the questions I wanted to talk to Scott about, we'll probably get him next time. Yeah, he was really funny. He says, I'll tell you, the next time I'm on the show, <laughs> it was hysterical. But uh, is not the Republican and the Democrat parties a Marxian dialectic? Because you've got parties that basically act the same. They're both going to raise the debt ceiling. They're both committing economic treason, putting us in a suicidal economic position. They're both willingly doing it. They're arguing. The only thing that McCarthy and and, uh, Brandon are arguing is how much to raise the debt ceiling by. They're not arguing whether they should raise the debt ceiling. In fact, I believe the debt ceiling should be lowered to zero. (laughs) Um, In fact, then the way to do that is to stop Congress from borrowing. So that's my position. My position is very simple. You stop Congress from borrowing, the debt will be paid off. It'll be gone in about 30 or 40 years. Problem solved. So I look at things very simply, and people say, well, you can't do that. Yes, I can. So we have to get over this idea that we can't do it. But why don't they look at it just that simply and, and recognize that the, the Marxian dialectic is a two-party system that's not a two-party system. And people don't see that, especially Republicans. Oh, I gotta, we'll get them next time. We've got to be you know, Republicans. We'll, we'll go out there. We stand for freedom, justice, the American way, mom, apple pie. We stand for limited government, even though we vote for bigger government. We stand for lower taxes, even though we tolerate higher taxes. We believe in individual health care and voted for Obama care and didn't vote to repeal it unless it couldn't be repealed. You know, it's like the non-party party. It's like the non-two-party system. It's a Marxian dialectic. Bianchi? Well, all that makes sense. But all that's behind you now, and if there's another opportunity in the future, you know how to structure yourself and prepare. Well, that's for sure. Let me give you a couple more things here. It says, the remarks came Saturday, this is Trump, at a rally held by by President Trump and supporters in South Carolina. Trump reportedly is mulling, okay, we already read that. He says, we'll pass critical reforms making every executive branch employee fireable. We read that. The proposal was from, I guess they took highlights for the top of the article. It says, the proposal marks an escalation from the controversial executive order Trump signed in October 2020 that sought to remove career federal workers in confidential policy-determining, policy-making, or policy-advocating jobs from the general schedule into a new job classification where virtually all of their civil service protections are absent, which is a good thing, essentially making them at-will employees, another good thing. Although the Trump administration began efforts to reclassify jobs into the new Schedule F, they ultimately were unable to move any workers before January 2021, and the Biden insurrection quickly signed an executive order rescinding it. So this is why it was so critical for the deep state to get Biden in, because that's, that's the only way they could have protected all their civil service people that shouldn't be protected. So that was a huge scam. People don't, there's another one. People, this isn't an ounce. That one, we all know that, uh, that Brandon got rid of the wall and got rid of the Keystone Pipeline. 
and open the border to millions of illegal aliens. But what you don't know, what most people don't know, that I found by accident, uh, is that one of his biggest uh, things was the Schedule F to reclassify federal employees, and he signed it in October of 2020, but it wasn't going to be implemented until January 2021 when January 6th happened. <laughs> you know, the insurrection, the real insurrection that the Democrats and the Republican deep state uh, did by denying Trump electors uh, voting for Brandon electors when they had no basis for doing that and installed Brandon in the White House. And when he did that, Brandon used his non-executive powers to illegally get rid of Schedule F. I like how you twist that around. Anyway, it says members of the Trump administration did push for more sweeping approaches to the federal civil, ser- federal civil service. However, then Domestic Policy Council member James Shirk recommended as part of an internal laundry list of policy proposals that officials seek legal justification for what he called the, con- the constitutional option, a legal theory that the president has power through Article 2 to dismiss any federal employee for any reason. Last year, Shirk published a report reiterating that proposal for the America First Policy Institute. Oh, this is new. I haven't, I haven't gotten this far in the article. I didn't know this. Think about that. Who is this guy? Members of the Trump administration did push for more sweeping approaches. Da, 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 da. Then Domestic po- Policy Council member James Shirk, should have been Shrek, right? I mean, you know, recommended as part of the internal laundry list, pol- policy, propo- laundry list of policy proposal. Oh, give me a break. That officials seek legal justification uh, in other words, are they making this up or is this true? What do you think, Pianchi? Could there be a legal justification for the constitutional option, a legal theory that the president has power through Article 2 to dismiss any federal employee for any reason? I don't think so. Let's look at Article 2. Have you ever heard this before, Pianchi? It's news to me. No, I have never heard it before. Let's see if we can pick a regular. Let's see if we pick a. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, but, it, you know, it stands for reason. So that well, was an issue with, Trump's, uh, issue with Trump administration, uh-huh. and uh, I hope that it doesn't be an issue if things come out and work out right for 2024. Well, let me, let me explore this constitutional option bit, and then we'll be done here for today. This has been a great day. I really love today's show. So we're talking about this guy, James Shirk, recommended as part of uh, their laundry list that there's something, and it says officials seeking legal justification. So that doesn't mean it's in there. You know, that's like a penumbra of rights. That's like saying that Roe v. Wade comes from a penumbra of rights. And it was really there. You just didn't see it. So if if they're trying to to say legal, whenever I hear words like legal theory and and constitution, I immediately start getting interested uh, that there might be a problem. President's power through Article 2 to dismiss any federal employee for any reason. Let's find out. Executive power should be vested in the president. Each state has a point, da, da, da. electors. Okay, so most of Article 2 concerns electing the president, most of which is ignored. Congress determined time, no person national born citizen, case removal of the president from uh, you know, compensation. You know, it really doesn't say what the president, oh, Section 2. President shall be commander-in-chief of the Army and the Navy. Okay, you know, unless, except, you know, da, da. he shall have the power by and with the advice and consent of the Senate to make treaties, appoint people, stuff like that. Uh, I don't see anything here about firing about the executive branch. He shall from time to time give a State of the Union speech. He can be removed for impeachment. And that's about it. No, I don't think they can do it. I think that's wrong. I think they can do it by executive order, but I can't think they can just do it as a constitutional theory. That to me seems wrong. Needless to say, I'm going to read the report between now and tomorrow. Huh. Well, you're getting back to the issue of constitution still for individuals, not groups. 
It is. Constitution is about individuals, not groups. So can the president fire people? I would say the president can fire people simply because uh, the president, you know, controls the executive branch. He so has not worked through his supervision. He has a work well, through supervisor. But do they, though? Is there anything in the Constitution that requires the president to not be able to fire somebody directly? I th- but I don't think that's a constitutional issue. I think that's just – well, maybe only in the sense that if the president is responsible for administering the executive, then that includes the ability to fire, hire and fire people personally. So I don't see that's – that's not a constitutional issue so much. as that's just, that's just kind of an automatic thing that you can't administer – the executive, unless you have the power to hire and fire, ultimately. Well, you got the power to fire and hire uh, supervisors, but individual employees, no. Why not? It's not a good taste. Okay, so you're talking from a practical point of view or you're talking about a legal point of view? Probably yeah, it looks both. terrible. Okay, so practically, I think you're right. It looks terrible. Legally, I don't see, if the, I don't see what the problem is. If the president can fire an upper-level manager, why can't the president fire, you know, a new hire? Well, the president receives reports from supervisors mm-hmm. and the head of the agency that those supervisors supervise. So it would go up to the supervisor, then to the head of the agency, then the president, one of his cabinet members. Mm-hmm. So what if I mean, a low-level... So what if a new hire on their first day is walking down the street in Washington, D.C., and a news camera picks him up and says, well, we'd like your opinion on, on President Trump's latest policy. You know, and, uh, they and know the employee says, speak on that. no, they don't have to speak on that. But what if they do? What if the person says, ah, yeah, I'm, I just started working for Trump today. He sucks. It's a terrible administration. So Trump could, what's that? The supervisor gives the employees their instructions, not the president. I know you know, that. you know how many employees there are on the federal payroll? Yeah. But what if what if someone said, hey, you know, President Trump, what do you think about this person that said your administration sucks? Trump would say, you're fired. First Amendment right to say that. that ain't oh, yeah. But you, you're still responsible for your job. Just because you have a right to speak doesn't mean there aren't consequences. So the right to speak is absolute. Well, their However, right to speak, shouldn't, their job shouldn't be tied into their right to speak. Oh, no, nah, I don't think so. I think I think it would be a hard case to prove that. So in other words, someone has a right to – so in other words, the, the exercising of the First Amendment has no ramifications for their job at all? They were just speaking on – no, I don't think well, so. Well, people got a right to say that the president sucks. They do. But there might be consequences to saying that. People have a right to burn the American I flag. Well, I wouldn't do so it around you, a bunch of veterans. So if I say the president <laughs> – yeah. So you've been saying that Brandon sucks. So what is he going to do for you? Uh, take away your apple pie? No, but I'm not saying it. But I mean, as a talk show host, it's kind of incumbent upon me to say that if I oppose what he's doing. So it depends on it depends on the context. So it's like if uh, Colin Kaepernick wants to uh, take a knee when the uh, the Star Spangled Banner is played anywhere except when he's in uniform. That's cool. Go ahead. You, you, you're, you're a spectator at a football game and they play the national anthem. Everybody else is standing up with a hand over their heart and you want to sit there on your, you want to get down on one knee. Cool. I don't mind that there's going to be uh, ramifications for that. There'll be consequences, but if you do it, but you can't do it in uniform. Free speech don't, free, yeah. Right. Free speech don't prevail in the workplace. So 
No, well, it doesn't. It doesn't. The president can you know. go out on the work floor. The assembly floor is so firing people now. Right. Right. So, in other words, the right to free speech. You know, the way I resolve it, and we did this. We had this question in our Australian Bill of Rights, and the way we came up with it is that every the, the right to free speech is absolute, but the location of free speech you know, may not be. So, in other words, you know, as long as you have a right to free speech somewhere, you still have the right to free speech. Now, that's different than the gun argument. But in other words, if rather than standing on your desk at work and yell, uh, you know, God is great, Trump sucks, or whatever you want to yell, that's not appropriate, especially if you're in like a law firm or an accounting firm. You know, that's, that's, that's going to be a problem. That's going to upset their business. But you can go yell it outside. You know, you can go dress however you want and stand on a soapbox and say, you know, uh, God is great, Trump sucks, or whatever you want. I mean, that, that you can do. But I didn't, but because, you, because you still have your right of free speech. Now, the question is, you know, whether it's at work, whether people are being denied free speech for not being able to complain at work, and that's where the whistleblower law came from. This is getting off issue. Let me just get a couple more paragraphs and we're done uh, on this, which is, uh, it says, earlier this year, Donald Moynihan, Georgetown University, uh, McCourt Chair of the McCourt School of Public Policy, so you know it's leftist, right, published a report in Public Administration Review, another leftist publication, on the looming dangers that populists and conservatives who subscribe to the so-called unitary executive theory could pose to the civil service system. Well, I'm opposed to the civil service system, so this sounds good so far. Monahan said in an interview that although it can be hard to discern whether Trump would literally make federal employees at-will employees by executive fiat, it seems likely at the very least he would seek to reinstate Schedule F on day one of the second presidential term. This is, he may not, here's a quote from Moynihan. He may not be talking about a really well-defined and specific plan, but there is an intent, there's an intent to do, there to do something. Now that he's been president, he, and he, while he might not uh, have a piece of civil service legislation ready to go, I think if he's elevated, he would actually do something very large and consequential for the civil service system. And I think the big difference is I think he would do it on day one rather than waiting until the last couple of months of his second term like he did the first time. So he says, Moynihan added, the threat does not come from alone from Trump. Even if he does not run, several candidates will seek to fill the same populist lane. So let's talk about this populism. So if we are a country that works on the consent of the governed, which is what populism is, not a democracy, but populism, and the popular will does not want um, people to have extra protections working for the government that they don't have in the private economy, is not it incumbent upon Congress to at least look at the issue? Now, we're still a republic, and they don't have to, but it seems to me, prudence and good sense, if the majority of people want you know, all the government employees to have the same conditions they work under, under you know, in other words, an equal opportunity law, <laughs> you know, equal employment law, um, why wouldn't Congress take that up, and why wouldn't the president have an executive order on it, as long as that ex- executive order came under the authority of a statute? We need to look at civil service. It's kind of a mess, isn't it, Pianchi? Yeah, they've already got the civil service rules, how the interaction between employees, all this been established. The only thing is, the supervisor during Trump time uh, weaponized them in some areas, like on uh, eavesdropping in on conversations between Secretary of State with Georgia and also with the Ukraine. Uh, counterpart that was uh, that's when it went astray hmm. yeah this is interesting um, 
What about the idea uh, – well, here's something that Trump could do, and we've talked about this before on the show. This has been the last point I'll make. The, uh, the federal uh, employees uh, that are unionized, all federal unions, government unions, that was done by executive order by John Kennedy. So what Trump could do is simply reverse or, or take a you – know, uh, revoke that executive order that allowed federal employees to have federal employee unions. That would go a long way to changing this, too. So what Trump should really do is both revoke that executive order of Kennedy's and there would be no federal employee unions because federal employees shouldn't unionize anyway. And he should uh, ref- Congress should actually reform the civil service program. So it, if Trump wants to impose Schedule F and he can do it by executive order with a duly authorized statute that allows him to do it, that's cool. But Congress really needs to deal with civil service and change the civil service rules so that nobody in government has any more protections than anybody does in private industry. Unless they're in some kind of super secret thing or something, maybe there are some areas that do need protecting. I'll have to think about that more. I don't want to make such a blanket statement. But Congress needs to reform civil service. Trump needs to put on Schedule F, and Trump needs to revoke that executive order allowing for federal unions. That would be huge. Yeah, but now you wasted one of his whole years for that to go through Congress. But I'm sure there's a way to to get the point across that Mm -hmm. uh, those sort of things are not going to be tolerated. No, I think the way way he does it is he writes the executive order. He he uses Schedule F for the executive order and sends a bill to Congress performing civil service. Hey, we might even write it. (laughs) There you go. All right. But anyway, I guess I'll see you tomorrow. Yep. Yep. Tomorrow's Friday, so we're starting early. If Shirley's going to be here, and if she's not, I'll start at 7. So we'll see what happens tomorrow. I'll talk to Shirley in a little bit. We'll figure out what's going on tomorrow. Do you have a guest at 8 o'clock? That's going to be fun. Uh, Christy Fisher, I was on her show earlier this week. She'll be on with us talking wellness, and uh, I think we'll be starting a regular report next week. At least I hope so. Uh, And we'll see what's happening. Today was fascinating. Uh, I really enjoyed today's show. Scott Shara. Uh, was just incredible. And hearing about his daughter, Grace, I'd heard a bit about the story before, but nowhere near the detail uh, that I have it now. And so that was amazing to hear. Yeah, but it's amazing that, well, like I say, it, it's, it's horribly sad. It's a horribly sad tragedy. But what he's doing now could save a whole lot of lives. And so, Absolutely. you know, so he's doing God's work. And uh, that's what we have to do, too. All right, sir. I'll talk to you later. Okay, I'll talk uh, to you. Okay, let me just get the websites out, and then I'll be done. I'll play a little bit of music. I always have a musical selection uh, for our days here. What's say Thursday? What's up for Thursday? I'll take a look here. I'm not going to tell you. I'll just play it in a bit. Oh, good one. All right. Yeah, I like Thursday's music. So if you're listening to us on blogtalkradio.com slash citizen action, please share that everywhere. Our legislative website is right yourlaws.com, W-R-I-T-E-Y-O-U-R-L-A-W-S. I am now on Substack, gregpenglis.substack.com. Our, our site to contribute to Action Radio is givesendgo.com slash Action Radio. That's givesendgo.com slash Action Radio. I'll be writing an article today. I just don't know which one. I have so many articles in my head that I want to write on Substack. So Substack's going to be really busy and really big. We're going to go through all our bills, all my ideas, philosophies, everything. I've got a lot. I'll probably be putting out two to three articles a week on Substack. So I'll be busy. Uh, I think that's it as far as websites and everything goes. Excuse me. Time I took a break. Um, Talk to you all tomorrow. Like I say, either 7 a.m. or 6 a.m. Central Time, depending on what's going on here. And we'll chat then. Greg Penglis here for my book, The Complete Guide to Flight Instruction. Everyone at some point in their life wants to learn how to fly. 
few try. Even fewer go on to get a license. I believe a major reason for that is how we teach people how to fly. My book is designed to help you navigate the flight training system, but it's so much more than that. It really describes an entirely new way to teach flying. So if you've never tried a lesson or got discouraged in your training and quit for any reason, this book can help you. Don't be a rope pilot who just follows procedures. Be a thinking pilot who makes great decisions, who understands all the reasons why we do what we do. You can incorporate these principles into your own flight training at any time. The Complete Guide to Flight Instruction is featured on the Action Radio with Greg Pankless Facebook page and is available from Amazon.com. Well, that sounds good. Even better. Okay, how about your car? If you want the best service for your vehicle, please talk to James at Florida Stores Automotive. Conveniently located at 6715 Caroline Street in the historic district of Milton, Florida. Right between the Milton Bakery and the Blackwater Trail. Whether you need an oil change or an entire engine replaced, this is the place. The phone number is 850-623-6651. That's 850-623-6651. Call, ask questions, and get the information you need. Florida Stores Automotive is a full-service automotive shop for both domestic and imports, modern and classic. It is a family-owned business here in our Milton community. Open weekdays from 7.30 to 5 p.m., Florida Stores Automotive is a convenient place to keep your car maintained and on the road. Ask them about Firestone Tires and the rotation and maintenance plan. Florida Stores Automotive. I go there. You should, too. This is Greg Penglis. So what is Action Radio? It is a radio show with its own citizen legislature. That's you, the listener. It is a fully interactive system of listeners, expert guests, social media, writing bills, legislator input, bill submission, lobbying, and citizen action. Action Radio is the future of talk radio using all the available technology in one completely integrated new system. You are listening to Action Radio Online with Greg Penglis. The webpage for all Action Radio shows and podcasts is blogtalkradio.com slash citizenaction. Please share our show with all your friends and family, both nationally and internationally. The guiding principle of Action Radio is this. We the people give our consent to be governed through writing the laws by which we are governed. <laughs> 